Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kevin Johnson, Beth Klingner. We're at Dion Vineyard. It's uh, November 15th, 2019. Thank you both for joining us today. We do appreciate this. Uh, And thank you for the wine also. (laughs) (laughs) The good part. The first question, of course, is why wine? Are you going to answer your equipment answer? Are you getting an answer first or not? Why did you do wine? Why did I do wine? So I used to drink a lot of beer. And I was getting fat, and this is in my 20s, early 30s, and I started drinking wine. And as you know, you start out with the cheap wine, and it's, the more you drink, the better it gets, and the more expensive it gets. And so, as my career progressed in high tech, and I started spending more on wine, and I started developing a palate. And then I am a geek, and so when I get interested in something, I tend to deep dive. And I kept getting more and more interested in wine, so I started taking classes, I would go to wine tastings, I was getting knowledgeable about it, I went to Bordeaux, I went to um, different wine country places and wineries and started tasting. I lived in Colorado at the time, so, uh, and I worked for Intel, and then uh, Intel said, oh, we have all these jobs in Oregon and Arizona, anybody want to go? And I went, Arizona, no, and I went, hey, I could live in wine country. I'm moving to Oregon. And I had traveled here on the Oregon coast when I was a kid camping, and I had never been to Portland, and I came here sight unseen. And I've never left. That was 2002. Um, and I, then I, so I was pretty into wine, and I was pretty into tasting and lots of different wines, and bought wine all over the world, and tasted wine all over the world, and mostly at wine shops, not traveling, but um, some. And then uh, I was, in Colorado, I hung out at this wine shop where I had a French distributor say to me, he goes, well, if you don't like Pinot Noir, it's because you have not drunk enough of it yet. And he was right. And so when I moved to Pinot Noir country, I started drinking more and more, and my wine cellar became less and less Italian and more and more Pinot Noir. And I love it. I just, I could drink Pinot Noir for the rest still, of my life. Still a lot of still. Still a lot of Italian. Well, that's because we don't drink it. We drink Pinot Noir. <laughs> and, um, and that includes sparkling, for sure. Yep. Uh, but then I started taking more classes, and I found WSET, and I started taking classes, and then I did WSET Level 2, and um, actually worked at a winery. I, uh, when Archie, there was, I was dating some guy who broke my heart and broke up with me, and it was what used to be Case Buyers Weekend, the weekend before uh, Memorial Weekend, and I was out tasting with friends, and we went to Archery Summit, because they were wine club members there, and I was like, this is fun. And I said to one of the guys, how do you get this gig? And he goes, oh, you go talk to Emily. So I went over to Emily, and I said, hi, I'm Beth. I'm willing to work for wine, and I happen to be free Memorial Weekend. Um, do you need any help? And she's like, sure. <laughs> and so she's like, you want to roll barrels around and wash dishes? I was like, yeah, it's fun. And so I did it, and by day two, I started talking to people about Pinot Noir, and they were like, um, you're kind of good at this. <laughs> and do you want a job? And I was like, well, I have a job, so no, but I could, you know, work on weekends once in a while. So I worked in their tasting room for a year or so, just one or two weekends a month, and had a blast and learned. So that was when um, 
Anna Matzinger was the winemaker and Lee Bartholomew was the vineyard manager and they would write up tech sheets and, and teach us stuff in the tasting room. So I learned from some two of the best in the business and I learned what ML, what malolactic fermentation was, I learned all the vineyard stuff and I just, I studied those sheets. I still have them somewhere. I should pull them out and show them to Lee. <laughs> She's who's now our vineyard manager. Yeah. But, um, and, uh, and I just, you know, I deep dived and I love it. And then, so I just went full on geek. And then I met Kevin, and he at Indie Wine Fest, and uh, it was 2010. And I mean, technically, I did fix his computer at Intel, but I fixed a lot of computers that day. So, uh, and we met at Indie Wine Fest. And Another if you meet a winemaker, never say to him, "Hey, do you need any help?" Because they always do. And he's like, "Sure." <laughs> he's like, "Free labor." <laughs> but we started dating. So our first date. <laughs> was spent at Indie Wine Fest, and right. our second right. date, um, he said, so, do you want to um, meet me at Vino Paradiso? And I was like, my favorite wine bar? Yes, I do. I, I would like to do that. <laughs> and so we sat down, and, and he's looking at the wine list, and he goes, would it be wrong for a guy to order a glass of pink sparkling wine on the first date? And I was like, only if he doesn't order the whole bottle. <laughs> so we drank a bottle of Cremant de Lore, I think. Uh, oh, no, no, it was... I can recognize the label, but I can't think yeah. of what it was at the time. Mm. It was French Cremant. And then we drank the Pinot Noir flight. And then um, we were talking, and we had way too much in common. And I'm from New Mexico, and he'd actually spent time in my hometown, which nobody goes to. And we had both lived in Japan, and we had all these wine things to talk about. And we were having a great time and getting along really well. And then, um, and then we drank a bottle of... Um, 2008? No. Oh, before that. No, no, no. We had uh, Petite Syrah. Petite Syrah, which is a weird cult little wine that mm, we both happened to be really bad at the time, drank a lot of. We haven't had any since, Petite I don't Syrah think. Petite Syrah is neither Petite nor Syrah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a crazy wine, but we had that one. And then I'm like, well, I'm not driving home at this point. And he said, well, I guess I should pour you my wine. And I was like, oh, my God. Please let me like it. Please, please, please let me like it. Because I had all, all this vested, and I'm like, what if I don't like his wine? And I loved it. And so it was 2008. It was the second wine he had made, and it was absolutely superb. And so he wooed me with that wine. And then somehow, in 2011, uh, he was no longer doing custom crush, so got bonded to make wine here. I was like, okay, great, I'm gonna work harvest. And then uh, it was late, 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 late and cold, and he said, wanna go to France? I was like, sure, let's go to France. And he goes, let's go work harvest in Burgundy. I was like, okay, let me see who I know that I can work that with. And Scott Wright well, we was a yeah. friend of ours, and, and he hooked me up with uh, a guy named um, Uber, Thibaut Hubert Verdero, and he speaks enough English to, yep. He's pretty good at English and is willing to have random foreigners show up and work for free in his vineyard <laughs> and winery. Was, well, remember, it was, so it's 2011, so it's, it's economic Great Recession time yeah. frame. And so uh, we were the joke that we were, we were the illegal American labor that was uh, infiltrating France mm -hmm. to take, take the jobs the French one wouldn't do. And, um, and we met a lot of Oregon winemakers that Yeah, that, about half of Oregon was in yeah. that year. Uh, um, that's where I met David Adelsheim yeah. and Josh Bergstrom yeah. and um, um, Brianne Day was there. She, we yeah. worked with her. We worked with Brianne. Uh, but we already knew Brianne. Mm -hmm. And um, who else did we meet? Anyway, there was a lot of people there. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was uh, fun. And, uh, Aaron and Ashley Bell right, and from uh, Duane Druin. And, yep. um, and they're friends of ours anyway. So. Yeah. Uh, 
anyway, uh, and then I didn't know anything and about making wine. I knew a lot about drinking it and tasting it, but not about making it. And Kevin knew a lot about making it, even, uh, and we did it in this 20 by 20 foot building uh, by this skin of our teeth and uh, I can clean stuff which is about 50% of winemaking is At cleaning least. so yeah. there is a picture of me somewhere on, a, on the internet with my rear end hanging out of a tank while I'm wiping it I mean I clean stuff and you wipe it all down the yeah the tank <laughs> sorry <laughs> more wine and, <laughs> and yeah and so we did 11 and it was crazy and to, you want to hear the Misery Start Chardonnay story? Uh, sure, we can tell Misery Chardonnay. That didn't happen. So Misery Chardonnay, um, well, it happened, but then there was a bottling accident, and so it was never formally my released. Fault. No, no, not really. Oh, totally no. my fault. But uh, we it. made a small bit of Chardonnay, and it was on Halloween, I believe. Yes. Um, and October 31st, yep. 2011. And I think that was the last day we picked, actually. It was. We went. We, we did the entire vineyard in... 10 days? on the 19th, I guess 12 days. Started uh, after your birthday, yeah. It was the only year we started yeah. after actually, your birthday. I think it was the 20th. Um, the latest I think we've ever started. Uh, very cold, crazy cold late year. 10 was uh, only a day. We started a day earlier than that in 10. Um, and it was still low. 10 was warmer. Um, and um, a little bit, not much. Anyway, we picked that Chardonnay and then we had it out here and we had a really old manual basket press and I, it was dark and it was cold. And, well, I actually, I, I was, right. We were both working full time well, we at Intel. We were both working full time at Intel and it was, um, I was not able to get out here very early and so the picking crew was leaving and Beth was out here and I think they were like, are you going to be okay? Because it's cold. And <laughs> the crew does not usually care. The but they're like, are you okay? You know, port it's dark. And that other building and not this building at all. And it's dark. And, and she's like, okay. And then I finally get out here. And so then we're, we're doing the manual. Uh, no. You know, and the press is metal. And metal it's cold. cold. So it bites. And you basically have to disassemble this thing every time you do a press load, which seems to be about five gallons, um, I swear. And so and I was getting very angry. And hurling pieces of the press into the vineyard and then having to go find it and bring it back. And I think she was a little concerned, like... It was this miserable. Is not, this is not a side I've seen before. Um, <laughs> and we, we had one Chardonnay barrel that we had gotten from friends of ours yeah. who sanded their name off the end, so we yeah. won't mention that. Right. Um, but it, it's people we really respect their Chardonnay. The dog bit now, actually. <laughs> yeah, it is, uh, actually. Yeah, and uh, so we, we got in there for a minute and it actually it was really lovely. Uh, very appreciably like gorgeous. And actually, it, it did freeze that night because the next day we came out and the leaves had gone from yellow, at least the, you could actually see the line across the bottom of the vineyard there, where the freeze line was, and it was orange. And so they were like, it was half orange, half yellow, it was beautiful. Not much fun though while you're out here in it. And But the, uh, the Chardonnay turned out lovely, and then we just kind of had a little bottling accident. And well, we used to it. hand bottle, and yeah. um, again, cleaning is utmost importance. And I had bottled exactly once before that, and Kevin got a job at SpaceX. Right, I was not in the state at about time of so, bottling, so. And we were like, well, I'm never one to say no to a dream job. And he had applied at SpaceX and got a job, and he can tell you what a rocket costs, which is cool. And he went down to California, and I was like, and everybody's like, well, this is the end of your relationship. I'm like, I don't know. Let's see how it goes. There's still this vineyard day. thing. And well, we started with, oh, two weekends a month. Right. Going, well, that'll be okay. It wasn't okay. Um, really fast. So he would travel three weekends, and I would travel one. I'd go down to LA one right. weekend. 
not always good for the wine business because we're both still working full time. And yeah, so that you know, so that meant there was accidents like the eleven Chardonnay, which it was bottled on open. Easter weekend, which yeah. was a very expensive weekend to fly. So I was on my own. So right. I recruited some friends who had no, no idea, <laughs> and we didn't have running water. We didn't have a hot sea, and so I, we were boiling buckets of water and trying to sterilize hoses, and mm -hmm. didn't do a very good job. Yeah. So junk went into the bottle with the wine, yeah. and. But it was lovely. It was so good, and then <laughs> the junk slowly took over, and it was awful. Yeah. So, so misery Chardonnay. We never labeled it, never sold it. Yeah, it's too sad. Like a shooting star. Yeah. It, was, it, it would have been so freaking good yeah, too. Yeah, eleven was really would have been a great year. It was a great year for because we had for, for white wine. Oh yeah. Was amazing. So amazing. Yeah, it was a very very crisp. Hence misery fancy. Chardonnay. So yeah. So. So that goes back to why wine, well, I didn't study it, he did, and he had made wine at Custom Crush and went to Schmeckata and went to um, some online courses at UC Davis, and I just was like, hey, Kevin, how do I do this? And I, then we've learned a lot by yep. making mistakes. Well, and you know, that, the Misery Chardonnay, I think, ended up being 20 cases. Yeah, it was a so small mistake. So it's a, actually a small mistake, and we, We've screwed up on small scale, which is a mu and you learn so much more from making mistakes than from making successes. Sure, yeah. um, so we're very self-taught, and we're very, um, but we also we know what not to do. That's for sure. Learned a lot of that. What, learned, yeah. The the eleven yeah, Pinot Gris um, refermented in bottle. So that was another bottling accident. Yeah. Was it eleven Gris? I think it's twelve Gris that refermented the bottle. I thought it was eleven. I think it was twelve. So anyway. You're not really want. There's a certain. Right it was passage. delicious, even when it was fermenting. Yes. But some of them, you and it was screw capped, and we unscrew it, and then we're like, so that's supposed to happen. Oh, that's so not supposed own. to. Screw caps actually do have quite a ability to hold pressure. Apparently, <laughs> only two of them broke that I know of. Yeah, so, uh, but some but, of my wine club still razzes me about that yeah. wine because they were like, "Oh yeah, that was exciting." Yeah. <laughs> we really there's, liked uh, that I one. Think there's a couple of rites of passage as a winemaker. Uh, one is usually uh, you. Have some sort of carboy blow up inside your house. Yes. My dad did that. I did that. I think you managed to do that once. I did it in the winery, but right. yeah. So same idea. Um, so usually there's something about carboys. exploding carboy. Usually while you're not around. Yeah. You know, your wife, your 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 uh, roommate, or somebody gets the uh, thrill of, of a wine volcano and, and cleanup. Um, and then usually getting referment the bottle. That's another mm -hmm. one that almost I think every winemaker has managed to do at some point. Um, usually, I think. Usually you'll have one wine where you just completely screw up. You're like, I don't eat the, that didn't work at all, you know, kind of thing. You, you thought it was going to turn into one thing, and you're like, mm, I nope. was wrong. So, so yeah, there's these little things that kind of, you know, every I, I think almost every winemaker has done at some point. Hopefully on small scale, and not like tens of thousands of cases or something like that. So. And just once. once yes, per. just once. You only need once. to make those kind of mistakes once. Yes, making them You twice. can make a different mistake the next time. Right, making them twice is not a good sign. So once is once is okay. And uh, so, but I think we've learned a lot, so. We've gotten a lot better. And <laughs> our wine, so our, our wine club has, um, we were like, well, we've been growing grapes for 40 years, so let's call our wine club the founders until we get to 40 people. And it took a while, because we're, we're not. We're small and we're not great at marketing and selling and stuff. And um, we, uh, so our founders have been around for a long time. So they know the re-fermenting Pinot Gris and they know the, um, and, and, they, and they tell us too. And a lot of them are super wine geeks and Pinot geeks and they're like, 
you guys keep getting better. We're like, well, God, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you've been there for our mistakes, but they're like, this is amazing. This is your best one yet. And I'm like, good, because it's the last one we made. Yeah, so yeah, we, so we're constantly on an upward trajectory. And just some of our processes have gotten better. And then with this new building up, up here, we've gotten a lot cleaner which helps greatly and then we just we have better temperature control which also helps greatly yeah i think this has been our own little mini reenactment of the early days of the oregon winery side yeah. of the business um maybe we didn't need to be quite so um precise in our reenactments but, um, by the seat of our pants yeah i think so but i think we learned some things that you know we never so we've had a vineyard started our vineyard in 1973 but we never made our own wine. We always sold the grapes. And so while we were there, in the only part of That's the not, there's a bottle of 1999 over there. Yeah. Hang on. No, I can't do that. Yeah, yeah that was dad. Uh, yes, Dion Winery. So, yes. <laughs> I don't really know the name. I cleaned it's out his basement. I found standard it. Standard stock. Computer, computer label. It's got junk on it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you can see, yes, there's some sort of sediment that was unfiltered. Um, Definitely. And uh, natural. 99 was it probably very natural. Very natural. Uh, it might be good. It might be interesting to open that. Somewhere. There's only one. There's only one. I didn't find any other ones. So far. I don't know where the rest. No, I looked at the rest of the bottles. There's only one. 99. Jeez. I think. I, well, I'm sure I helped them with that. That's interesting. Um, so um, yeah, but we so so oh right, why wine? Uh, <clears throat> it's my parents' fault. Uh, so like a few other winery people, um, bubbles. Oh yes, yes, got to get a resupply. Um, like a few other winery people out there in the Oregon wine business, uh, I am. Well, I guess third generation, actually, which is maybe not like, I don't know if anybody else can claim that. Um, and I'm not sure if it's semi-legit. Um, but um, we planted our first vineyard when I was three years old, two years old, somewhere around there. And so I grew up around this, um, as did my sister. And we both, like most children, really, really enjoyed being out in the dirt and the mud, and the bees. Child labor is totally legal Child when it's your own totally children. Totally legal. Um, so, but we grew up around it. Um, didn't realize that it was kind of like a weird thing, I guess. Um, we mostly grew up around the vineyard side of it. So unlike, say, uh, Louis Ponzi or someone like that, or, or um, Adam uh, Campbell, uh, we didn't necessarily have winery stories on that, although we visited wineries and you know that kind of stuff. We also, one of our Harvest t-shirts says keeping our day jobs since 1973 right. yeah, because awesome. his parents both, well, your mom raised kids. She raised kids and also ran uh, several small businesses yeah. on the side. And um, his dad had a full-time job the whole time yep. until he retired. Yep. And so uh, it, you know, it started off, um, it was kind of two factors. Uh, my grandfather um, was uh, a lumberman, uh, a uh, sawmill side. And he actually moved down to California with grandma at age 18 or something silly, uh, like right at the start of the Great Depression. And it was different back then. And, um, and he got in the logging business and um, he kind of, I guess he was well known for, and, and probably not well liked, uh, 
for the, he learned basically how sawmills are, are work well. And so then he would be hired by various sawmill owners that sawmills were not working well. And he would be able to come in and be like, yeah, you don't need that guy, and you don't need that guy, and you don't need that guy, which probably didn't make him very popular. Um, but kept sawmill running, so maybe the town should thank him because the sawmill didn't go out of business. Um, and uh, so, but he did that for a number of years in California, Oregon, probably up in Washington. He was originally, he and Graham were both originally from Washington, um, near um, Yakima, actually. And Prosser, I think, is where Grandma was born, as I recall. Granger, maybe, one of those small towns that now everybody knows for wine, ironically enough. Not at the time. Um, I think they were known for, like, alfalfa or something. Um, Having a bathroom. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> running water, maybe. Um, and he was, jeez, uh, I'm trying to remember, seventh, seventh child or something. It was a big family. And there's a story of him, sometime when he was a teenager, he caught a pitchfork in the chest and somehow walked that off and kept going. I'm like, really? I don't know that story. He was a tough guy. He was, he was hardcore. We'd get a splinter because there's posts and stuff, and he'd be like, pocket knives out, he's like, I'll get it. And we're like, no, I'll run for grandpa kind of thing. And um, so he finally retired from the, lo uh, the logging business, and uh, they moved to Sunnyside. Um, and uh, I think maybe for about six months, grandma put up with that, and it was like, you need to get the out of the house. Um, I, I'm not used to you being around here. You know, go find something to do. And he'd grown up on a farm, so he bought a few acres of land to kind of have something to mess around with. And he actually, uh, I think, heard, it wasn't, there's some fellow who's the Washington, the father of the Washington wine industry, McClure, Clure, or something like that. I know, again, all Washington guys are like, it's, da, 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 you know, and I'm like, I know, I know. Anyway, I think it was either him or one of his disciples was going around trying to get the, the farmers in the area to plant uh, vinifera grapes up there, which they were successful uh, eventually. And my grandfather heard that, and he sounded like, sounds like a good idea. So they planted, along with my dad and mom and him, planted uh, some Merlot and some Cab up there. Uh, and you're like, awesome. This is like, I don't know, 65, 68, way early. And right idea and almost right area. Unfortunately, he was down in the flats as opposed to up on the hills. That's where all those vineyards are today. And so they did it for a few years. And then one of those Washington freezes, you know, did a winter kill and killed off the vineyard, which uh, happened, especially in the low areas and that kind of stuff. And so, so the great Washington wine experiment came to an end. Uh, my dad, besides helping out grandpa, uh, also, him and mom had been getting into their own sort of wine interest, and this was back in the time frame. They, they had a number of tasting clubs and winemaking clubs. I think it was maybe in through Portland State sometimes. And so he was in a, in a club with uh, Ron Volstek, who founded Oak Knoll. They were in some tasting clubs with, I'm pretty sure, uh, we were talking earlier, Dickie Rath, and I think so Susan Sokol Blosser and Bill Blosser. At least my mom seems to think that they were in that group. I don't know if Susan agrees, but... <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> we'll just say yes. Um, and she would, my mom will tell stories about how, you know, they'd have, they'd have, you have these tastings and they'd have, you know, there are like five tables and everybody's, you know, blind tastings and everybody's raving about this wine and they didn't like it at all. In fact, there was a whole bunch of it I've left on their table. And, you know, one of the fellow other, you know, people at the other tables came over and said, oh, you've got some of that left and tried it. And then they're like, oh, this bottle's bad. And they're like, well, no wonder we didn't like it. Right? <laughs> Everybody else got to enjoy a nice bottle and they probably got a cork one or something. So, 
So, uh, but they were doing that, and so uh, between that interest building and the and his mom will say that Kevin has had his diaper changed in more tasting rooms than probably I, I, any I, I, other I, child. Especially in Napa, uh, they they did a Napa adventure, and, and apparently I got my diaper changed uh, in various probably very famous places. very famous places. Yeah, yeah. probably. I, I don't know. Um, so. Because uh, yeah. um, why not take the baby? Right, you know, it's the 70s, what are you going to do? It's, you know, it's what you did back then, probably now. Um, so they decided to give it another try, except do it down here. And so they went looking for property. Uh, they almost bought a piece of property on this little road called Sorrento, which is now Beaverton. And we would have been millionaires if they bought that <laughs> because it has now got houses, in fact, of girlfriend in high school may have lived in the area but anyway uh, and uh, it's like oh dad we could have been rich <laughs> but they didn't do that um, and instead they came out uh, out here and they bought five acres down the road from us because his dad didn't want to drive down to Newburgh Dundee <laughs> right. area he wanted something close right something close uh, they lived in Beaverton and um, almost the same house that my mom's still in uh, they moved three blocks when I was in junior high um, that was a traumatic move for my dad. He didn't like moving. Um, I, on the other hand, and then they a different experience. And they moved to Portland, three right. blocks, yeah, and they, they moved, moved to out Portland. Yeah, moved to Portland by moving three blocks. Uh, it's right behind uh, Jesuit High School, if anybody knows the area. Crowley Hills. And so, um, and back in the day, that was about a 20-minute drive, and now it's more like 40, at least, um, kind of thing. But it was relatively close. Uh, and those plantings, we think, are actually the first plantings that are in the hopefully soon to be Laurelwood AVA. Um, the Ponzi's actually planted before us, but they, their original vineyards outside the AVA, it's outside any AVA, it's mm -hmm. over by their own property. And then um, the first time they planted over here, I think it's 78, uh, maybe 76. Um, 76. Over, over that way, yep. And um, so they started planting in 73. Uh, there's you guys were loaning you the journal about the varmint and other ridiculous stories. I mean, it was it was wild west of, of vineyard, not people not knowing what they were doing. Uh, you know, digging post holes by hand. They did like a well by hand, and then they drank the water out of it and got sick because <laughs> um, it only went down about twenty feet, I think. And uh, it was good enough for watering the plants. And they're like, maybe we just bring water out. Um, so, uh, but they started off, and it took a little while to plant out that five acres. And I was there, and then my sister joined shortly around that time afterwards, and wasn't much help to begin with because she was couldn't an infant couldn't move um, <laughs> and uh, crawled a little bit. And um, and so then we bought this property up here, uh, the first ten acres in you know seventy five seventy six time frame, and did the first plantings up here um, in seventy six. And that's one of the wines we've been tasting here is from those plantings. Um, you know, the, the, the grapes came from, sometimes from OSU, sometimes out of California. We never, Dad never did a suitcase clone thing. I don't, I don't think he went to France until 2000, um, kind of thing, um, maybe a little but bit. But he had a lot of French books. Well, a lot of French books. A lot of, he was a researcher. A researcher. He was a guy who liked to research things. Dude, you know, he, he'd buy a bunch of books and study it up and do those kind of things, so. And his grandpa would come down, they, him and grandma would bring down one of those old Terry uh, fifth wheel trailer kind of things and park it on the property and stay out here. And grandpa loved driving the tractor around, that was, that was a blast. And in fact, we would sell the grapes down to Oak Knoll, which is about um, two miles away, across 219. I think 219 was paved at the time. The road here was not paved until 2008, which also led to the 
ruralness of the place. Um, and so when we did harvest, he would load up a very small trailer's worth of grapes and drive the tractor all the way to Oak Knoll across 219, pull in, they would unload the grapes, and off he would go, and they would like dump them, and then they'd be like, <laughs> what do you think, 20, 30 minutes until he's back with the next load? Yeah, okay, and just all day long, he'd show up with this just trickle of grapes, and they'd be like, so I mean, they, you know, they loved him. They'll still tell you those stories, No, too. they remember, yeah, they remember. Marge yeah, especially. Still, Marge would remember, would remember that. Um, and so, uh, but we grew from like, you know, two or three acres, and then all five acres planted out, and then we started planting up here, and, and uh, get, you know, that was at least up through the 80s. And we, my sister and I, really, 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 really enjoyed doing farm labor. Especially since we lived in Beaverton. So <laughs> we would go to school, and unlike uh, some of the folks, like, I think, I think, Louisa and, and I'm sure Adam went to school more out here in the countryside, so they were farm kids. We were suburb kids. And so we would have to work our weekends out here in the mud and then go into town and everybody else, you know, they're wearing their Jordash jeans or whatever and we're like have dirt on our hands and they're and we're like, What is this? Right, you know, kind of thing. And then my mom still has a story of uh, she got us Walkmans for one Christmas and it was Thriller. So whatever year what Thriller came out. Mid 80s. 81, 2, something like that. And so that time frame. And she came out here with us and uh, we're suckering. So one of the things you do in the spring is the, the great the, the buds will come out and up up on the fruit zone that's what you want, but you also get um, some shoots come out of the trunk, the suckers. And you need to get rid of those. It mostly involves walking by each plant and leaning over and basically with gloved hand, you just knock them off. They come off right, no problem. If you get them early enough, you wait too long and it starts to, wood starts to harden up and then it's a pain to get them off. So you want to get them as quick as you can, knock them off, if literally with a finger you can knock them off. And you would think as kids it would be pretty easy because we didn't have to bend over too much. We were uh, somewhat tall but not too bad at that point. And we were complaining continuously so much that she stole Walkman from us and put on Michael Jackson so she didn't have to hear us complaining anymore and we just did you know up and down the roads and she wasn't listening to us at that point so there was a lot of family adventures um, like that uh, we don't have a family Labor Day tradition like going to the beach or camping or anything like that because every Labor Day we were working in particular we were putting on bird netting uh, which was a big problem in the 80s because the, the the harvests were later and the migratory birds would get here and so we tried to put the netting is that plastic, black plastic stuff, you'll see it like around construction sites, very fine mesh. It, and we would actually, my dad made this, grandpa and dad made this rig where we would put, it was on, rolled on PVC pipes and we'd put it on two poles on the back of a trailer and you'd drive the trailer and pull the stuff off behind you by hand. And so we would drive up and down and one of the kids, usually me and then eventually my sister got big enough, she claims she's better at driving the tractor than me but that's not true, don't let her tell you that. <laughs> Um, and the problem was, though, you're driving along, first of all, you start to hear things because tractor sound, and then when the nets would fall up or, or bind and you had to stop to get them, everybody in the back would yell at you, stop! And so then you're like, you know, trying to figure out how to stop a tractor, and we're like 12, you know, I'm driving this tractor. 
And that's what we do, did for like two or three weekends in a row, including usually Labor Day. It was hot, and, and so. This yeah. is why we got married on Labor Day. We got married on Labor Day. We needed to get something better tradition than that. <laughs> and so, yet, uh, we got married in 2013, and we've had, with the exception of this year, we've had hot early yeah. harvests every year. So we don't get to celebrate our anniversary until harvest we're is over. Sparkling wine, because yeah. this year was right around our anniversary. So, which is great. We love sparkling wine, obviously. So. So uh, we did that for a number of years. We bought the lower property in like 85 and started planting that out. Um, I remember being out, uh, my dad was measuring off posts or measuring off future rows. It's documented in the journal. Yeah, oh no, not that one. That was the journals a little before that. And so we, we, we took big long tape measure and every nine feet put in a, put in a, you know, a little marker because grandpa would, when we did that, grandpa just basically drove a tractor running over the things with a plow to open up the, open up the land and then we would hand plant. Uh, we hand planted about half the property we have now and then eventually we hired out to do that. And it was actually do you want planting to as a kid is a lot of fun, or at least as a boy, uh, because what we would do is we'd dig a big trough trench from the top of the road down to the bottom and then we'd run water down that and you'd start the planting at the bottom. So you had to wait till the, the water got all the way down every once in a while be like, where's the water? And you go up there and it's running down a gopher hole and you had to fill that in. And then you get the water all the way down there, you put a plant in and then, well, you'd make, you'd make a dam and you'd puddle up the water and you'd stick the plant in and then the person up next plant up would do the same thing, cut the water off and then you'd do this. So as a, as a kid, you're playing in the water, you're making dams, mud, dirt. It was great. That, that was fun. Planting was a lot of fun. And we do this like sort of leapfrog all the way back up the hill and then we get done and you move the water Thing over to the next row and it started running down and everybody walked back and we, we planted, I don't know, 20 acres that way over, <laughs> over not, not all one time, but over, over the years. So yeah. at least 20 acres, maybe 30 acres. Um, it's all love. This yeah, is it's a all love. labor so, of love. Yeah, so. Um, People say they love wine. We love it. Yeah, really. so this was the 80s and um, I got to shoot birds during harvest that was fun they gave me i don't think i had a driver's license they gave me a 410 shotgun and i basically wandered around and shot at birds during harvest to keep them from eating, eating the uh, you can't really hurt i had to shoot the birds on the wire because actually hitting a bird in flight with a 410 is nearly impossible for especially someone as bad a shot as i am so i would actually wait till they landed on the wire go out pick one poor fortunate unfortunate bird that bird would get hit, all the rest of them would leave, and then I would walk back and hide or just goof off for another 10 or 20 minutes until they came back. And that went on like all day. So again, as a boy, that's kind of fun. Firearms, unsupervised, no, they, they, it's fine, it's all good. Um, and uh, so we did that for a while, and then um, I you know, finally graduated from high school and kind of rebelled at being in dirt and mud and that kind of stuff and I went off and decided to join the Navy and I actually, he went to the Naval Academy so I went to the it's Naval not Academy. just joining the right, Navy yeah. so I went to the Naval Academy which is all the way across the continent as and, far away as you can get from Oregon well in the continental, in the continental US. US and um, anyway I went and uh, went through the Naval Academy and then um, went out to the Navy and I drove destroyers and I operated nuclear reactors um, and so for about 10 years and it was funny because I think it was 2014 harvest and I'm walking up out of the vineyard and it is hot and it is dry and it is dusty and it is outside and it's on land and I'm like 
huh, I got as far away from this as I could. <laughs> I didn't really sort of think that at the time, but now I, re I recognize it. You were leading troops, too, of Vickers. Uh, Remember, that was the, yes, that that was was the, the Civil War year. Yes. The Civil War battle reenactment year. Um, it, and, so our vineyard manager absconded and we had to run missing. it and so we had too many crews and we had to do it 2014 was huge huge crop and so the huge. pick went on for it was just it was monstrous like the entire pick. valley underestimated the yeah, crop right, estimate by 30 percent more and so we had had people fermented in bathtubs and yeah there's some funny bits. video of, of, of jim prosser talking he was being interviewed by like one of the local news stations about he was trying to get he said we're trying to get wine to just stand free form with no container around it and just stay there right <laughs> kind of thing because every container in the valley was filled with wine and, but he delivers it better if you could ever find that that's he's he's a very funny guy so he does that very yes. well and um no yeah so uh we had had a day where the crew flaked out and i'd had to tell a customer that we weren't gonna be delivering the grapes and i yelled at the vineyard manager and the next day <laughs> And I yelled at him worse. Well, yeah. The next day was either Saturday or Sunday, which is can be dangerous because the crews will show up with extra people because it's the weekend. And so, you know, wives or kids or whatever will come out. And so all of a sudden your crew is like bigger than you were, you know, normally been doing during the week. And he also got a contract crew because... Because we had yelled at him. Because we had yelled at him. And that contract crew had sent like their eighteen. These guys were unbelievable. And so we come out here. I have a video of it somewhere. Yeah, you know, we get out here and it's you know dark and starting to get light. And I'm like, well, we'll see who shows up today. And all of a sudden, cars just. There were like twenty-four cars. And I'm like, oh boy. And they had and multiple people in each car. We're like, going. and oh. our regular crew. There's only uh, really one truck to deliver grapes. Right. Yeah, and our regular crew basically. Um, grabbed one tractor and took off and started packing, picking Pinot Gris, leaving the contract crew looking at me. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm in charge today. Okay. And so- I'm trying to run the winery. Right. She's up here. And so we're down below the road and they just picked something that normally takes us three days. They picked like in three hours. I'm like, oh boy. And I, I go to her, I go, well, they're still here. They still want to pick. So he said, well, let's pick the old wines, uh, which is back up over here. And so they get done, and there's about 20 of them, and I'm like, well, follow me. And so I just a single column, and we just came marching up the road and marched up the driveway and hung left past the tree. It's hilarious. And walk right past Except the that it wasn't funny right? at the time. And it's like, you know, and it's dusty, and, and I've got a hole in my chest because of other reasons. But anyway, I've got this sort of cyst thing that I was supposed to keep out of dirt and other problems that wasn't happening. So, and... Um, Anyway, we march. We march on by like a like a civil war. And I'm just going. Like I'm a general. I'm, I'm, I march the troops out, and, and I almost. It was almost. Not that quite. was the day I learned how to drive the tractor. Right. There was that, and then and we and we got out to where the old lines are, and I, it was basically like a you know like a company halt, right face, pit, and they just went <laughs> up the hill, right, and they it, and it took them like and I, less than an hour to pick the whole thing, and I'm like, all right, guys, we're done. You know, kind of, I got nothing left for you. And, Stuff that would have taken us four or five days, they picked it in the morning, and it was crazy. And we had so many bins of we had bins of fruit everywhere. It took us forever to get all that fruit. Three days. Three days. It was all out that day. What are you talking about? It was all good. It was all delivered that day. Mm -hmm. The day was picked. So, but anyway, uh, yeah, no, I went off and, and did about a, a, a ten years in the Navy, and uh, really enjoyed it. Um, 
but kind of started missing, uh, started thinking maybe that wine thing wasn't so bad. And I actually started making some, some wine on my own when I was, uh, I was on a shore station a little bit. And I just literally a kid of wine and said, well, let me try this thing. This is the carboy blowing up in his closet. Yeah, that was, that was more of that. And then, you know, it's amazing, by the way, you make carboy wine, it's five gallons, and which is astonishingly easy to, to make that quantity, even that small or large quantity. And then you have your buddies over, and, and you're like hitting the tap on this thing, like, and, and it's like, it still hasn't gone down. I mean, if ever, we had, we just had piles of people in the house that we were renting at that point, and it was like, okay, well, I guess I really like the wine, you know, kind of thing. And, and so, um, and so I kind of just was experimenting and, and playing around and making wine on my own, and then got stationed back uh, in Bremerton and, and actually came down and, and got some wine, got some grapes from our vineyard. And took them back up and we kind of stomped them a little bit. And that was the one that actually exploded. It was some perverse for me that went berserk. And, um, and so, you know, I was just playing around making some wine. And uh, I got stationed in San Diego and actually would be silly enough to drive to Davis from San Diego to do a couple weekend classes and then drive back, like, all in one shot. Uh, my sister at that time lived in San Francisco, so occasionally I'd use that uh, as an advantage. And, uh, and I finally said, you know what? I, I, I was pretty tired. Uh, the Navy was, was pretty busy at the time. It only got worse after I left. Um, and I was like, I think, I think I've done my duty. I think this feels pretty good. And I wanted to work with my dad. And so I said, I think I'm going to come back and, and, do this, and do this wine thing. And he's like, OK. And so I came back. Uh, I took some classes at Chemeca, uh, most of the classes down there. And uh, I went off. Because I knew absolutely nothing about business, because maybe. Um, and so I went and got an MBA uh, up at the University of Washington, and which helps to get the day job, um, which helps keep you from Killing waking you. up in the middle of the night going, I don't know how to sell enough wine to eat, um, kind of thing. And, um, and kind of just started going from there. And the first vintage we produced was 2007. And uh, some Pinot Noir, and we just kind of kept going, and like I think Beth's kind of you know, filled some of how we've grown along since then. So that was one question. I know that's good though. I think I answered all your questions. See, look at that. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little thirsty. So, all right, second what, question. <laughs> what was the what was your family's reaction to you wanting to make wine after all these years of basically oh, just growing grapes? Oh, it depends who you ask. Uh, Dad was fairly enthusiastic. Mom, maybe less so. It's still mad. She brought it up she, to me. Well, it's funny. Last week. Dad, um, I never wanted to start a winery in the right. first place. Well, we I have think, one, I so. I think Dad would have started a winery back in the day, but Mom was did not really want to do it. And so I'm not sure she was, or as Beth noted, is thrilled that we are actually in the wine business, although she enjoys drinking the wine. Um, and so, uh, yeah, a little bit of mixed reaction, but, you know, uh, I didn't move back in. <laughs> that helped. <laughs> in my 30s, that would have been fun. Um, although I did, uh, when I, MBA, you do an internship kind of thing. I interned down at, at uh, Intel. Um, and I thought about getting an apartment down here, and I'm like, parents are right here. So I lived with my parents for whatever that was, six weeks when I was about 35. <laughs> Wow, was that unfun. <laughs> God bless him. Like, that was fine. It saved me a lot of money. And it was fun. It was nice to see him. But, you know, like, are you home yet? Your dad wants to eat. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, homeschool all over again, right? You know, kind of thing. 
and it looks like you know kind of thing. So fortunately, Kevin's dad ate on a schedule, yeah, and if you missed that schedule by oh, yeah. five minutes, yeah, that was bad. Oh, that was that was. Yeah. I've, got one, was I've got one of those. In fact, uh, when we did go to France, uh, we took a family trip to France to go to Alsatia in I think it was pre 9 11 so I think it's 2000 maybe 2001 most people say Alsace uh, <laughs> I speak wine French, I know, wine but French. I think that's how the Germans say it so okay. um, I'm uh, getting myself in trouble from that conversation um, and uh, so we, we we took a red eye it was it was it was just the family it was my sister and myself and mom and dad it was probably the last family just family trip we ever did before wives, kids, dogs. Well, I no, no dog on that one. Um, and uh, we flew into Paris from Red Eye, and then left our bags at the at the the best Western that they found near the opera. <laughs> I didn't even know it was possible. And uh, and then we were all in one big gigantic room. And let me tell you, your parents snore them more than you ever do. And my sister and I was like, oh, the horror, because I'm. 30, she's like 27. We're like, how did this happen to us? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they paid for it, so I was like, all right. And um, anyway, we, we uh, besides don't go to the Louvre when you're after the red eye, because you walk around the Louvre and you're just like, <laughs> Mona Lisa, you know, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> Hard. It's, well, the lube is hard enough to absorb anyway, but when you're like red eye all night and that's what you go to, it's just impossible. Anyway, we had somehow my dad had scored uh, reservations at the Jules Verne, which is the restaurant in the Eiffel Tower. Um, we were, I think, the first ones to show up. <laughs> I think the staff was a little like, hello, <laughs> you know, or bonjour or whatever it was. And we go in there and we sit down and, you know, they bring the menu and what we realized afterwards is this isn't actually a place that turns tables. They have like one seating because they're French and they're Parisians. And so we're like the first ones there and they bring out a menu. It's also one of these places where like your decision is do I go with a five course meal or the seven course meal? Well, my dad's like, well, I want this and this and that. And they're like, I mean, technically it's on the menu, right? They're, they have all the carts, the entree, you know, items, but you know, over here are this wonderfully crafted, and they probably, I'm sure they have white pairings, you know, that kind of, and then he orders one bottle, you know. and so we go through all this, and, you know, we, we eat, and we, because, you know, we gotta eat, because dad's scheduled, and we get through all this, and then they're like, well, can we get the check, and they're just like, uh, they didn't know, because literally people are still showing up to be seated, and we're leaving, and I think they're like, <laughs> who, what, who, but that was dad, he had to go, he had, my sister had some friends at the time who lived in Paris, and we got back to the to the Best Western, which was lovely. Um, and she calls them, and she's like, "Yeah, we just got back from the Jules Verne." They're like, "You just got back? What are you talking about? Like, you should be going now, right?" Like, they were just flabbergasted because they were used to you know Paris time. And so that was Dad. He had a schedule. He had to eat, you know by six, or it was going to be oh. angry, or five forty-five would be better. Yeah. So. Uh, if you making if, reservations, you had very precise if reservations. Were, if you were smart, you you could you could shove cheese and crackers at him and hold off the inevitable. If you were smart, <laughs> and minimum martini that would usually also kind of you know keep things going. But, vodka martini. Vodka martini, right? Yes. And so, if you were smart enough to get ahead of the problem, you could delay it a little while, but not not for very long. So, but yes, that was our adventures in Paris. And I'm walking around going like. 
how do I get out of the room without anybody noticing and go out and, you know, kind of thing. So I did not figure out a good way to do that. I think I maybe I got out a little bit, but not really. So. One of the things we did when we went to Burgundy in 2011 is we worked Harvest for the first week. And um, I went a couple days before Kevin did. And... Uh, so I, and I rented a little Fiat that I could drive like nobody's business. I could parallel park that sucker. It had a stick shift and diesel. diesel. I only had to fill it up once. It was awesome though. You can, I don't know how she much wine a, you could get in it. a French woman. It was really <laughs> weird. I got there a few days later, uh, day job again. And so, so I have to do this whole, she sent me these very cryptic notes on how to navigate out of the airport to a train station, but not that train station, go to the other train station, and then get on a train going this direction, and then right through the really bad parts of Paris, <laughs> and then and then show up at the, the main, whatever it is, the, the Ord, the Nord, whatever it is, the, the main train station there in Paris, and then find these tracks and get on the TGV, and then ride that all the way out to Dijon or Bone? No, Dijon. Bone. No, no, Bone. Oh, Dijon, you had to change trains. Yeah, then get off there and wander around, because there's everybody waiting for this one little train that runs down to to um, to Bone, and so I managed to do all this, and I get off the train, and, I, and and then classic, like I had the classic Americana moment where I, I get out of the train station and I sit down on the steps in front of the train station, and I could either be, you know, backpacking across Europe or a GI or whatever it was. I'm I'm American guy sitting on the steps of a French train station, kind of, and then up. Comes this French car, a Fiat. Fiat with French. I loved pop. my Fiat. French pop music coming out of it, and she's like, "Get in!" And I'm like, "What? What? what? Hello? Who are you? Oh, wait. Like, okay. we gotta go back to the vineyard. We're right, picking. We get, get in. I'm like, okay. So she. It's my first harvest, right? right? So I, I I'm still excited. In. Off she goes ripping through like through side roads and this and that and the other. And next thing I know, I'm in a vineyard. We're in the Ocote de Bone, no, which yeah, is... Not, 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 no more coat, Ocote, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, they get there and they're all like, oh, Kevin, and they, they give me... Because they've heard about him. Right, they've heard about him. And the next thing I know, I'm like, well, they know I'm in a vineyard. So now, and, and I'm like, I haven't picked grapes since I was like a kid. I mean, you do it a little bit, right? But like hardcore, just pick, pick rows. And I'm like, all right, here we go. And so I'm... You know, and I've flown all night, and I'm just like, click, 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 you know, but I can't, I can't look like I don't know what I'm doing, right? And I, I can't quit, you know, because I'm a hardcore American vineyard owner, right? And I grew up around these vines, I know what I'm doing, you know, and so I just start, kept going until we were done, fortunately, and then, you know, we get down there and, here, have some French beer. I'm like, all right, I'll have this. And, uh, you know, we process all our food in, and uh, she smokes a cigarette. Um, I only smoke in yeah, when I'm doing harvest in France. Right. Yeah, and I'm like, what the tiny little travel dimension have I fallen into? Kind of thing. So, but it was a lot. Of so fun, the so. first week we worked really hard, and yeah. um, and then the second week all the fruit was in, and the, yeah. we were done, and we did the la 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 the, yeah. the harvest celebration, and the great fight, and, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, and then we did we danced in the in, in <laughs> this happened. Uh, we we we. The, 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 the crew we fell into was this very interesting, mostly French crew, who were not professional pickers. Teachers, teachers and people who can French take two weeks off. And the auto mechanic. Ooh, the first day says, I am a French doctor. And he turns around and pulls his pants down and shows me his bare bomb. And I'm like, <laughs> loser. Uh, okay. And a 
very nicely muscled one, but um, okay, I was, and I was I'm married. Because the, Actually, I wasn't married at the time. I so. was a little disappointed because the French men seemed to be quite happy to drop trout anytime. But the we French saw a lot of French asses. Were very mo no, we saw a lot of French men's asses. Yeah. <laughs> the women, I'm like waiting, and I'm like, come on. I, 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 no. No, no, the French women are far more modest. It's like, darn, that would have been a lot more fun. Anyway. Um, I had a good time. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, this crew, uh, they like to sing. Uh, they were very yeah. French, but they were also... Americans, if, if the American wine industry is lacking anything, it's good drinking songs. Yeah, no. We have, have no good, no, drinking, have no good songs, drinking songs. And we um, need them. Right, because they would just start launching off in the They have all these drinking songs. Yeah. They're great. We need, some, we need some drinking songs. And they're in French. And yeah. we're like... So, but we get done with the harvest. And la, we la, la. take the fruit back up. And then... We do this like conga line, singing conga line through the village, as we'll make, through the village and then kind of around the maintenance house. You forgot the grape fight part. Well, the grape fight happened down there. So There's a grape fight, and you throw grapes at each other and stuff them down their shirts and, and stuff. It's tell, fun. One key element, uh, a successful element for French uh, vignerons is to schedule not grapefruit for the last pick because a grape fight is going to happen. And I could imagine if you were talking about something that was going to go into like. $200 bottle or a $1,000 bottle of wine and people are throwing grape clusters around, you'd be like, yeah. So it was Aligote, <laughs> and, which is a lovely white wine that's usually fairly cheap. And uh, so yes, big grape fight, people shoving grapes in the air and that kind of stuff. And then we all Fun hop, as hell. Hop, in the, hop in the vans and buses and back up into the village. Singing the whole time. Singing and, we don't and know the words. And everybody as we're going along. And, and beeping kind of the horns. Beeping the horns, yeah. And uh, they, they have a little more fun. They have a lot more fun. They don't pick as hard as we do. <laughs> They're much more civilized, and um, and uh, so then yeah, then we everybody piles out, and this like singing conga line thing goes around the. It's not quite. It's not. This is the village square. of Volnay. This is the village of Volnay, but there's sort of this common you know thing we're going around, and these tourists like drive through, and the next thing you know, we're conga lining around the tourist's car, and they're like, "What <laughs> is going on?" And, and they're probably like crazy Frenchmen, and we're like, because I could tell they were they were not. We French. looked French, and we were like, "Yeah, ha, ha, look, Americans, no, 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 no. you know, we're dancing around. But we're in Colombia. Like, put your foot in, put your foot out. And anyway, and um, anyway, and then you know, and, and uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, they, those guys have a lot. They had a lot of fun with her doing harvest. At least that year they did. Now, since then they've had a couple of vintages, several vintages that were a total disaster. I think it was probably less fun. Um, I think this last year, I think they've done better. So hopefully they're doing fine. But uh, that was fun. And then, and then we kind of played. We would come to. Uh, so the second week. Yeah, we come to we the got to be tourists, out, right? We'd help out at the winery if they needed it, because uh, most of the crew went home. Come here. And, uh, yeah, come on. Come here. He's like, what are you guys doing? Come here. Oh, goodness. You can be um, on the camera. Yeah. And, uh, and so then we kind of played tourists, and so we drove around up and down Burgundy and we found various. We basically stocked vineyards. Yeah. And, and we were we like, we had a vineyard map and a vineyard book in English. Thank God, and uh, and we're driving all over trying to figure out why they are Grand Cru right. when across the road is not Grand Cru, and we're like, is it the elevation? Is it the slope? Is it the dirt? What is it? And and. Um, at one point, I'm really lost and very frustrated because somebody's not giving me good directions. 
and I'm driving the Fiat like crazy and I finally just pull over and go like, damn it, give me the map. And he, he goes, um, seriously, look left. And I'm like, no, give me the map. And he's, I turn look left and it's Romani Conti. <laughs> I'm like, oh. She randomly driven through. I got Romani. lost in the right place. <laughs> right. She, she drove randomly through the village of Romani and pulls out and parks. Where are we? And I'm like, I don't know, the most famous ones right there. You know, like. <laughs> that was what we were looking for. Right, you know, so I was very good at getting Latash lost. Over there, you know, kind of yeah. And so, but we, um, we, we spent most of our time looking at vineyards and, and then wandering into... We had no We had no appointments, so right. we couldn't go to wine tastings other than to like go into a shop and be right. like, oh, let's, so fun. let's buy a bottle and taste and it. And, and oh, my God. Had, it was wonderful. They gorgeous. Had, you could go get like a bottle of local Cremant sparkling for like seven euros or nine yeah. euros. It was fantastic. And, and then so we go to one of those and then you'd have, that was the aperitif because there's a lot of Oregon winemakers there we were meant to talk about. And then, so you get together somewhere, everybody bring, you know, you bring a bottle to is this amazing seven euro wine. That would be the aperitif and then you go off to dinner somewhere and, and the food is great and... Amazing. You got it. If you go into France, because I mean, we stopped in Paris on our way back, which was culture shock. And... At least at the time, I'm sure it's gotten more expensive, but the wine was super cheap, relatively. Yeah. Uh, the food was super very, high was quality. Super high quality, super food, cheap, and, and the prices were quite fine. Yeah. The people were amazingly friendly and mostly spoke enough English or put up with our crappy French. Put up French. with my French, which turned on at about five days in. Which he just, just starts speaking French. I'm like. And I've never taken French. Who so, are you? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah. I, I've been here uh, three days longer than you, and I don't speak yeah, French yet. So, but I, I found I, I usually have to be in France. France is French. So uh, English and German are very much like walking, and French is like skiing. Um, and so when I, when I go skiing, which hasn't been for quite a while, like I got to get my brain in the sliding mode. I usually bounce around and try to slip and slide and do some things while I'm doing it. And, and to try to get my brain in the sliding mode, as opposed to ch -ch -ch mode. And French is kind of like the same thing. You've got to get your brain to like click over. So, are you off? Yes. All right. Thanks, sir. Thank you. <laughs> See you tomorrow. Anyway, that was a trip to, trip to France. One yeah. Trip, so, um, a lot of fun. Okay. All right. Question number question, three. Question three. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about, uh, as you started making wine, especially as you started making it commercially here, mm -hmm. what about kind of developing your winemaking philosophy? Like, what did you want your wines to be? So, good. Um, oh, good. Yeah. Um, That's the answer. Yes. Great, actually. Great. Great. Um, from the very beginning, it was always an experiment or uh, effort to show what the vineyard could do. So we always wanted. We always made an effort to, as much as possible, uh, showcase to not get to not get too fancy uh, or tricky and to kind of, on the winemaking side, be as, I mean, we're, we're very much, we, we said we're not, you know, consider ourselves to be natural winemakers, whatever that means. Um, we are fairly low interventionist winemakers, minimalist winemakers, but that's almost more because the more we do to the wine, the less it's about a signal from what the vineyard did and more about what we do with it. Now, Sparkling wine's an interesting difference from that because you really kind of build a sparkling wine up. That being said, um, we really like what our vineyard does with sparkling, so, oh, that's a pretty good spot there, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, we try to do sort of minimal interventions. We, we keep the oak 
modest, although we use it. We use new oak and we'll use a decent amount when it's appropriate. Um, we keep the toast modest. We use tend to use the same cooperage uh, year to year because the more we change that kind of stuff, the more it's less about what the vineyard did and less and more about what we did with it. Um, and then we try to keep individual blocks separate and for as long as we can and we'll do uh, some things like the, the old wines we tasting come from a particular single block. Uh, the reserve wines and the Shale Mountain wines are a blend of all the different blocks that we take fruit from. And so when we build the reserve wine, it's we taste it blind and each block has a chance to make the team. Uh, some blocks have been in every reserve bottling we've done and others have come and gone depending on how they did that year. And so and it's also helps us with a feedback loop of what are we doing in the vineyard. Um, and what block did well and what block didn't and why and those kind of things. So it's, it's always started and, and stayed rooted and showcased what the vineyard can do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're still, that's still true today. Um, we don't... Uh, do you want to hear a rant? Oh. <laughs> is, it oh people, is this the part oh. we're going to have to tell them to cut out, probably? <laughs> when people say, oh, we have a Grand Cru vineyard in, in Oregon. Which and I, I told you we went stocking vineyards in, in Burgundy, but you know why they're Grand Cru's? And we, we basically came to the conclusion that they're Grand Cru because the monks made stellar wines from them year after year after year, no matter what else happened. And for 200 years. And when we've been making wine for 200 years in Oregon, we'll know what the Grand Cru vineyards are. We have no idea. Right. We, we we're we a 50 well. year old business. We, we, we don't we like know. We like what ours does. Yeah. We think it has a lot of potential. Um, we're not very good at selling that potential, but um, <laughs> but we're, we think it's a lovely vineyard. And is it Grand Cru? Maybe, but ask me in 200 years, yeah, except yeah. I won't be here. We'll check back in um, and see how it's going. Yeah, so. but it's, you know, we need, we need consistency and time. We really need time in Oregon. Everybody says, oh, we're so great, we're Grand Cru. You don't know yet. And give it some time and give it some generations. And I like seeing multiple generations in Oregon um, and multiple, you know, 2019 is not like the previous five years by a long shot. And uh, it is a lot like the 80s and 2007. And yes, a lot of people have not been making wine in Oregon for very long. And they got surprised this year. They got surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, but we're, we're vineyard people more than winery people. Uh, we make the wine, but we also grow it. And we walk that vineyard every day. So mm -hmm. we see what it's doing and what's going on um, far more than a lot of winemakers do. And, and there's no criticism on that. You, you prioritize what you have to prioritize. Mm -hmm. and, um, I would imagine there would be winemakers who would be like, your winemaking's a little rustic. You could do this, 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 and this. I'm like, what? Well, maybe, but <laughs> we just got a forklift. Come on, you know. You I showed got, them the forklift. You think we got that tool? Seven years on, of forklift-free right, right. winemaking. Right. That's so, exciting. Yeah, the barrels are heavy, even empty. So. so we used to only stack too high, and Kevin and I would lift yeah. them empty up there and fill them up full. Right. And then when you have to rack them, it's really difficult because you can't get the racking tool into the lower barrel. You gotta it's, rack the top ones first and yeah. get them off. And then yeah. You can come back in. And yeah. Or at least rack the top ones empty so you can kind of push them up and then you can get them. Yeah, it's um, challenging. Yeah, forklift's nice. Forklift is great. Yeah. <laughs> you can see the dent in the door where I drove yeah, the forklift yeah. into it. Uh, early, early learning lesson. Yeah. Again, you make a mistake once. Day two. Yeah. She's only done it once. I've only done it once. Yeah. So, so tell me about your vineyard. You're talking about being vineyard first. Yeah. yeah. So tell, tell, it's a very, obviously a very old vineyard. Tell, yeah. about, tell me about the terroir of the vineyard and, sure. and, and what you're growing here. So we are, uh, suppose we started planting at this particular spot 
1976, and the youngest vines we have were planted in 2001. So all the vines, all the blocks have a very decent amount of age on them. Uh, we're principally Pinot Noir, about half of it is Pinot Noir, uh, about a third is Pinot Gris, and then we've got some Chardonnay, and we've got a few other cats and dogs, we have a little bit of Syrah, a little bit of Tempranillo, um, uh, some Viognier, Alberino, 50 plants of Grenache, half which everybody that. asks about. Um, <laughs> And those were dad, dad planted those as sort of a, we call it the global warming block, uh, sort of an experiment on um, can warmer climate grapes do well there in the hottest part of the vineyard. And with some old 108 Chardonnay was there, which nobody wanted to buy, so something else had to go there. Um, but uh, we, so we're on lower wood soils here, and in fact, we're in the hopefully soon to be approved, uh, already under review, lower wood district ABA. It's a subset, sub ABA of the Shehala Mountains. Um, and so lower wood soils, we tend to think, uh, are closer to uh, Jory Dundee types than say, uh, maybe Eola or your sedimentary Wolokansies. So they tend to be red fruit. Um, maybe I, I like to say that uh, on the red fruit, well, laurel wood kind of does the same note as, uh, as a Jory, but like an octave higher, um, if you want to use a musical analogy. And so they sound the same, but it's a little higher, you know, higher up on the scale. And then we usually get some, I think one of Laurelwood's signatures is that it gets some kind of spice as well. Usually white pepper, sometimes regular pepper, sometimes something else. Um, 11 was just forest floor, which isn't a spice, but it's, it's pretty clear. Um, and so we get a little, ex little something extra on top of there, I think. Again, in 200 years, when when they, everybody stayed acidic for that long, I suspect those are kind of be the tastiness they talked mm -hmm. about. A little bit harder to say on the white wines because I don't think anybody has really nailed down like what Chardonnay or Pinot Gris does differently on different soils, although they probably do different things. Um, I'm just not sure we've done a whole lot of cross tasting at this point to to know that. Although I think we make very pretty white wines. Um, uh, at least they're they're more pretty than than they're more elegant than big. Um, I would say, but again, that depends vintage to vintage. So, um, we have quite a bit of self-rooted uh, vines. About half the vines are self-rooted, and which you know, knock on wood, we'll see how that goes. But 40 years, 40 plus years, and they're still still trucking. So that's we can't complain. Whatever happens, for sure. Um, and we have a mix of clones. We we got Pomard. That's you know, original. Uh, the original plantings were all Pomard. And then we've got a, a block of Dijon clones of 115 and 114 and 667 and 777 and 113, which is not that common. And, and then some 2A because we didn't have any Vadensville, so Dad wanted some or something. I don't know why we planted that, but it's only one acre, half an acre um, kind of thing. So we have some 538, which is really a rare um, for here. Uh, we call it the Colmar clone because it's kind of where it came from. And it actually is. It's, we got about an acre. It's propagated from a couple plants that OSU brought in in 1978, and we were one of the few vineyards they offered it to, and we planted a few of them, and I think they probably forgot about it. Where <laughs> is it? Uh, the original 538 is actually in the old vine, so technically it's not 100% Pomard. It is 100% minus three plants. Pomard. <laughs> um, so, and uh, it's on that uh, row 35, next to the, it's near the Foch. There's one, there's one stray Foch plant in the middle of Marichal Foch. Yeah, and, and it, doesn't get in, it doesn't get in the old vines because by the time we get around to picking the birds have eaten them because it ripens about 10 days before it. 
but it's uh, my dad called call it the indicator. Yeah, he called it the indicator grape because you would it'll do color change and everything beforehand. So, so you're kind of wondering like when's Verizon coming on? Where's Bloom coming on? You can walk up there and see like did the Foch go yet? And if it did, you're like, well, we got about a week or two, uh, kind of thing. So it's a it's a good early warning sign. So, um, and then we uh, we're three to five hundred feet uh, south, maybe southeast-ish kind of. Mm -hmm. And we're in a we're in a unique spot here in the Shalem Mountains. And if you look at the Shalem Mountains, and I That's know everybody fault. made fun, but it does look like a T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex, upside down. So if you flip it around, we're in the foot, and um, and this, we're this credit goes know, to Jim Prosser. Uh, yeah, Jim Prosser thought that one up, and um, and uh, Shahalis Rex, and. Um, <laughs> and uh, we need T-shirts. We need T-shirts, and. Uh, so there's, even though we're on the north side of the Shalem Mountains and on the north part of that, uh, this sticks around and so we're actually in this, this mm, sort of unique little spot of southern facing slope on the north side of the Shalem Mountain. There's not a lot of that around. Most of the north side is, is east or west kind of thing. So, so it's a little, bit of, a little bit of a unique spot. And we're a pretty early site. We tend to pick, get picking, mm, I would say, mm, three to seven days before most of the valley gets going. So. And, which is nice because we need pickers. And we can <laughs> freak people out. Yeah. And uh, the, what uh, you're picking? Yeah, we're an early site. Our, our 115 block that's closest to the road is on uh, RG rootstock, which tends to be rather precocious, and so it'll change colors before anything. And Adam Campbell actually lives around the corner, and it freaks. He's told me that that block freaks him out because he'll be out walking or driving by, and it'll change color, and he'll be like, "Oh my god!" And it's two weeks ahead of everything else, and but it just. It apparently causes him some concern when that happens. He knows he knows it's coming at that point, kind of thing. So, just tell him about the Foch. That would even be worse. It would go beforehand. So, that color of his. So. <laughs> but um, it's nice having uh, it's nice having mature vines. I think that's uh, um, a luxury that not all the vineyards have out there. We've planted a lot of grapes, and although they're showing some maturity, it's. It's, I do think there's something to be said that vines that are over 10, 15, 20 years start to start to show distinctiveness, and, and it's one of those things that we see with the with the old vines that we do. Um, they're they show they're very distinct from the other blocks, and more so every year they get along, and hopefully we'll be able to keep that keep that block going as as best we can as it gets older, and, and hopefully not be visited by the louse that shall not be named. Um, so you're fine. Yeah. Right. Uh, question four. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. So when you started here, you had the you had the tiny little spot that isn't really a, a winery that you turned into a yep. winery. Yeah. Since then, you've added this space. You've added yep. the tasting room. Tell us about how that sort of changed what you're doing and how you're marketing and how you're selling your your, your wines now. Do you want to try that one? Uh, <laughs> well, for one, I have a drain that drains, which is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. The drain on the and, uh, yeah, doesn't go the right way. So. Yeah. I showed him that. Yeah. But the in you know. Cleanliness is next to winemaking, so uh, I scrub the drains. And I, but this is a, a. But in terms of sales as well, and how are. No, no, no. This is a better room to make wine in because yep. it's temperature controlled. Uh, that air conditioner up there is at ground level in the back, so we're sort of naturally insulated because we did quite a lot of excavation to get this building in here. Um, and I can hose everything down, and I can clean things, and I know that things are going to stay clean mm -hmm. instead of every time you open the door, the vineyard comes in. Right. Um, it, we make wine in the middle of a vineyard. It's you know, cleanliness is hard. Right. Uh, but then, uh, the tasting room was 
brilliant because that's how we sell most of our wine. And people come out here and when Kevin was uh, building, working with the builder to build the tasting room, he goes, what do you want in your tasting room? And I forgot about stuff like, you know, a sink and, and wine storage and storage. that kind of stuff. And I said, big ass windows. <laughs> and because we have a view, we have a gorgeous view and it's one of our biggest assets because we're a working vineyard. So we have a gravel parking lot and we're not fancy and we don't have, we don't have lots of places to sit down. We don't have a kitchen where we can cater stuff. We just don't have that. We're real, we're old school Oregon, uh, reinventing the Oregon wine business that's already existing. Reenacting, um, we're reenacting. Reenacting, yes. So. Realistic reenactment, and yes. um, so it's been really good for us just because we can sell more wine, and yeah. uh, and people. Small... We have a, a small wine club, but it's they're our biggest fans. Um, people who like us really, really like us, yeah. and uh, the people who want the big fancy tasting experience and the. I mean, we do actually have crystal glassware, but um, you know that. Oh, and I feel so fancy when I come here, and it's lovely, and everybody waits on me hand. But we don't have that. We're but you come to our tasting room and usually you meet Kevin or I and we talk to you about the wines. And, and the dog. And the dog, Chaco, and Chaco. sometimes he barks at you. And, um, but we have, we're very real. We're very authentic. Um, we it's just... Too much, but uh, still. We just are who we are and it's something we believe in and we believe in wine. Mm -hmm. And we believe in Pinot Noir. And most of the people who come visit a tasting room are self-selecting as they're interested in our products, they're interested in Oregon wines, they, they want to come to see a good view, and so we don't get very many unfriendly people. We get lots of awesome people, and which is really yeah, nice. nice. And most of our people come back. Yeah. And our goal is to provide a really, we're not heavy into sales, I'm a terrible salesperson actually, and, uh, but I'm like, you know, what I want you to do is take that bottle home that you bought here and sit on your couch on a Wednesday night and open it up and be like, Oh man, this is so good. I should have bought more. I'm going to have to go back. That's the experience I want you to have. Yep. Is sitting on your couch, drinking the wine that we created and going, oh, this is great. Instead of, because you know, when you go wine tasting and the third stop, you tell them about, yeah, yeah, I'll buy some of those. And then you're like, oh man, what was I doing? And I used to be on the consumer side of things. I think the entire Oregon wine business went, oh man, when I got into production because they're like, there goes our sales. <laughs> Best customer ever. Yeah. Uh, and you can't. I learned pretty fast. You can't market to yourself. Um, but we really we 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 have a good price point. We're in the a little bit in the cheap seats. In, in we're in an ABA. We're in a sub ABA. Hopefully, touch wood. But um, but we're not on 99W and Dundee and EL Amity and all that. Um, we don't have big marketing guns behind us. So uh, people have to come find us, and that's kind of fun. Um, so most of the people, we, we talk to people all the time. I had a mother-daughter duo from Minnesota here today, and I was like, so, you guys want to go for a walk? And then Chuck was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> so we went for a walk in the vineyard, and they loved the old vines and shipped a case to Minnesota, and, and um, we, I was like, let's go look at those vines that made, those, that, made that wine. <laughs> And they had a great time. They're like, it's so beautiful here. I'm like, yeah, working here is pretty, you know, the views sucketh not, so <laughs> it's pretty nice. Um, so just, uh, I, we also, in 2016, we quit hand bottling. <laughs> that was the smartest decision I ever made, and <laughs> which I mostly made, sorry. <laughs> but, um, it so takes we, a lot more uh, effort to get everything organized. Logistics. Logistics, yeah, there's no doubt. And, 
you got to fit onto someone else's schedule. Which but you can hand bottle about, you can hand bottle 100 cases a day, but it hurts. It does hurt a in a, and you, yeah. So you can do 200 in a weekend, but boy, does it hurt. And we're old enough to not want to do that anymore. Um, also, at the time, the, the, the wine business continues to grow up, uh, and so there are now more professional options. Well, there's more options of what you can do. Whereas even like 10 years ago, some of the options we have today were not available right. in terms of that, that kind of stuff, at least at the scale that we do. You know, bigger guys, sure, maybe, and you know, they might have their own bottling line, which is a pain to maintain. Um, and, you know, but we're seeing, I think, a maturing of the business, maturing of the supplier base, it's kind of nice and it makes it easier for the smaller guys. I think we'll see hopelessly more of that. Um, <laughs> Oh. That was stinky. Hopefully it, it's kind of looking at um, There's a winery dog. Um, you know, so, yeah, you, um, but, you know, I think a lot of um, other uh, wine regions, um, both in the U.S. California. And, uh, California, but also, uh, obviously France, but other places too, you know, they'll have some resources that are available at the smaller scale that we haven't quite got all the way there yet and hopefully we'll see that you know my understanding is like you know the folks like grower champagne lots of times I, I, my understanding is you know you'll have a village bottling line or co-op those kind of things and i think also i think i've heard new zealand you know has like a lot of um co-op bottling facilities or at least you know available stuff and so uh i hope we see that more here i think we will so we are big fans of andrew davis well, there's that. shout out to radiant sparkling wine company because they've enabled us to make some really good sparkling yes which we're, yeah. so we are fans of Andrew as well. So. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Andrew's fun, and he's he's, a, he's an awesome yeah. guy, and he's very professional, and yet he has he has an excellent palate, and he he's just fun to work with. So, the people who are really the wine business, I think during harvest sometimes I get a little grumpy, and um, you know working fourteen hour days in the hot sun, and not this year, but um, and I, I've been known to yell at Kevin. This is supposed to be fun. <laughs> We're not having any fun! And it, 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 most of the time, the wine business is pretty fun. It's fun. It's yeah. a lot of work, though, and it's a lot of cleaning. <laughs> we get to have our own. So vineyard people and winery people, <clears throat> the vineyard person wants to get the grapes picked and sent to the winery. And the winery maybe has a different agenda. Uh, tank so space, they, they want, logistics. I mean, they tank space and what's coming in. And oh, those vines, you know, the grapes need to hang for a little longer or some other silliness. And so, we get to have our own internal domestic version of that because Beth generally gets to at least manage the winery flow uh, because I'm usually running around making sure the pickers are not in the wrong block and picking the wrong grapes or something like that, although this year went way better, but that's... Uh, and, uh, and so we've had times where I'm like, we gotta pick this for us. And she's like, no, you don't get to pick that yet. And then I'm like, I have to take this from Louisa Ponzi, and I have to take it from my wife. Like, oh, you know, kind of thing. So this is this is how we ended up with the 2017 hang time. Yeah. So uh, the blocks that we take, we definitely drop fruit on because um, we've found that we do see a quality improvement with that, and that's a, the the joy of working with the same blocks in the same vineyard year after year after year. As you see that, um, but in 2017 we went from zero to nine fermenters in two days. That doesn't normally happen. Normally we get you know two to three fermenters, and then a, a couple days later two or three more, and and so things are fermenting at different rates. But at zero to nine in two days, and I was in a freaking out. Foot space. We 
yeah, and that's crazy. And so we're insane, and I'm insane. And Kevin's like, there's more fruit out there. They didn't pick it all. And I'm like, don't you dare. <laughs> don't not bring me any more fruit. I want nothing to do with it. And so he waited. So time passed. And Ten days to two weeks, so I flip a couple fermenters, and we get right. wine into barrel, and then he picked it, and it was uh, 115, or it was 114 uh, and triple seven. And it had had an extra 10 days, two weeks of hang time, which is, so wineries love hang time. Vineyards hate it because basically it's hanging out there and they're shriveling and the shrinking and we sell it by the ton. Well, so sometimes. we're going to sell less fruit for the same amount of money just money because you let it hang less. and we're like, hmm. Yeah. So, so, but we brought it in and it was... Tastes like cherry pie. Quite it's right. Delicious. And yeah, but it, I and so, hate it. <laughs> so we processed, you know, kept it separated and then checked with the barrels and we're like, so it's a, it, it is... It is a big, friendly cherry pie, and everybody loves it. So, like, and, uh, and we only made two barrels of it. But and, and he goes, "Are you really going to call it hang time?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I'm calling it hang time." <laughs> so it's it's our it. it's our complete and, yeah, irony. Small amount. Wine. We made we, we made some in eighteen too. Well, it's in, it's it's in barrel, barrel. and uh, it hasn't been bottled yet. And but not nineteen. Nineteen was not a year that no. you left uh, out on the vine. So. That's a kind of, it was kind of the opposite. It's more like, pick it now. Kind of so we basically make three Pinot Noirs, and then so sometimes we make a special project. Yeah. Yeah. We've done 100% 115 in the past, 115 clone of Pinot Noir, and mm -hmm. it's been quite nice. Actually, yep. we made that in 18, too. I know. And yeah, um, right. so we did two special projects. And then uh, in the hang time, so. Yeah, and then we make some Pinot Gris because we have a bunch of it planted. It's lovely. We, um, we do have a t-shirt that says this would be better with bubbles in it because I know that Chardonnay is the new hot thing in Oregon, but it's always better with bubbles in it. So this is our Blanc de Blanc. Right, that's the um, so we just so. make Chardonnay with, to be bubbly now. Yeah, because uh, that's the way we like it. Yeah. Um, and we decided last year or two years ago to just start making wine that we want to drink. And that may not be the most popular thing because there's an ocean of great Pinot Noir out there and some really good bubbles coming up. But this is what we want to make. This is what we want to drink, and so that's what we're going to do. Because we're passionate about it, and yeah, you know, people like it. It's pretty good stuff. It, it doesn't suck. No, it's not the best. You guys do need to work on your marketing a little bit. Yeah, see, I'm terrible at marketing. I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> Best stuff ever. So, you, Beth, you reached out to me the summer after after your father passed away, yeah. after yeah. the father passed away, uh, and uh, I'm curious about your experience, kind of rediscovering the early Dion Vineyard history and sort of some of the things you found and are sharing with us today. Uh, tell me about that kind You've of the, the, we'll the, the it, kind of yeah. process of finding the old photographs and old bottles of wine and things like that. Yeah. Um, so Ron was quite a character. <laughs> he uh, and I had have a more flexible schedule than anybody else, so I ended up taking him through chemo and then dealing with when he had surgery for cancer and and uh, all the aftermath where he went downhill. And um, so we developed some uh, some pretty good friendships. One of our harvest T-shirt ideas that we didn't actually print this year yeah. <laughs> was. Next year, and he was a he was a sundowner, so when the sun went down, he would just 
not really know what was going on and he would pick up probably he never used his cell phone ever until he got sick and then he called us every five minutes <laughs> also something grandpa did so be ready i got your number um <laughs> He um, and he'd be like, he'd call me and be like, Beth, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm like, you need to get better. You need to get healthy. So you need to rest. So go to sleep. Okay. So I'm supposed to go to sleep. Yes. Okay. And then, Beth, when can I go home? I don't know, Ron. We have to get you healthy first. Whatever, Beth. So, yeah, so whatever. whatever. Beth became a very popular tagline for him and us. But um, so, but he also when. Uh, he retired, he retired and ran the vineyard and then a couple, three or four years ago, he said to us, so do you guys want to take this over? Because if you don't, I'm going to sell it. And we're like, whoa, 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 no, 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 don't sell it. We want it. We'll take it over. So I started delving more into working harvest and figuring out how the vineyard works because I had concentrated more on the winery side and Kevin, obviously, having grown up here, knows more about the vineyard. Um, and I quit my day job two, almost three years ago. So it was, uh, I had the time to put into it. And uh, the first year he was great. And he would show up every day and like tell me stuff. And I could add, and have a list of questions to ask him. And you know, what is this? And what is that? And what does this usually do? And does this sound right to you? And, and he taught me a lot. And then he was like, OK, I'm done. And he would stop by on his way to play golf, which was great. <laughs> Yeah, he did that and a lot. He really enjoyed playing golf during harvest because yes. for years and years and years he it. couldn't do it. And he played golf at Forest Hills Golf Course twice a week. Twice a week. And uh, and the golf buddy showed up for his memorial or his celebration of life service. That was great. And it was yep. the first time we'd never met them, but they all knew him really well. Yeah. Oh, I think and, I, I might have played golf with Anyway, once. they were lovely. And um, and he uh, and then so he'd show up and be like, "How's it going? Good. Okay, great. I'm gonna go play golf." <laughs> Yep. I'm like, wait, I have a list. Hang on. And so when he came back, he'd check in at the end of the golf game, and I'd get my list done. But um, so he coached me a lot on learning harvest and learning the vineyard. But then this year was really weird because we'd be like, oh, we should, oh, we can't ask him that. And there's a lot of stuff that I think he assumed that we know because we're here all the time. But it's just in his head and you, you've seen some of the notes that he takes and he did meticulous research but he didn't necessarily write down what he knew he just knew it and so he would tell you it but if you didn't ask he wouldn't tell you and so this year was really weird We're like oh we should ask we, oh I wonder if this is what oh we can't ask that question so it was it was kind of it was pretty weird and um, we have a new vineyard management company this year and so harvest flowed really well and we're, we were very sad because it would have been great Ron would have loved it. Mm -hmm. He would have loved watching Harvest this year. It would, he would have been just laughing and having, this is great! And he would have been so, had so much fun with it, so. But it was, it was interesting. We found, um, the, I think you, you know, take and scan it, the, this journal, um, uh, we're cleaning stuff out. Which, uh, for those of you out there, <clears throat> clean your stuff out before you pass so your, <laughs> your kids don't go through like all your college stuff. Uh, he never threw anything away. No. And uh, so, but we found this old journal and I wish we'd videotaped. Um, your mom reading it. So, yeah, oh my God. She's in she was the one who written a lot of it, but they're, they're, it, you'll, when you go through it, it's hilarious. Because at one point they're actually, I think it's grandpa is one of them. 
Uh, but certainly mom and dad, and they're arguing in writing about the varmint uh, that our first dog killed, uh, which is probably a nutria, but mom's like, and they draw a tail. There were three like, different golden retrievers who lived in this yeah, vineyard, in this or vineyard. spent and, a lot of time in this vineyard. Yes, and, and had many adventures in skunks. Other, in skunks. Uh, a lot of skunks. A lot of skunks. And, um, but my mom hadn't seen this for, because she was actually been looking for it for a while, and I don't it was down, downstairs somewhere. On, on and off, she mentioned it, and uh, and she went back and, and read through all this stuff, and it was like I said, I wish we could have videotaped. She goes, oh, and the handwriting's changed, so this must be your this must be your grandfather, right? And <laughs> yeah, and, and it doesn't go on for too long. It's just for uh, the first few years, and it kind of peters off, and it's too bad because uh, she had actually talked about, uh, and I wish she had done it. Um, you know, keeping this journal up and maybe writing a book about the whole thing, and, and uh, I wish she had. But it's, it was a fun find, and it was really interesting. For, uh, it was just great, because she was going back and reading through it and just cracking up some of these things. She has MS, and so yeah. she doesn't leave the house much, and she doesn't do a whole lot, because she's pretty shaky. And, yeah. yeah, so it was it's really tough. nice to see her have a, a really nice moment uh, revisiting that for the first time in, well, let's see, 75, uh, let's see, 40 plus years kind of thing. She, had, she hadn't seen it for a while, so, yeah. um, so that was fun. And uh, it was neat. I, I, mean, I had not, I don't think I'd ever seen it. So. He kept everything. So there's a whole, I threw out a whole, I've been cleaning through the office downstairs, and there's a lot of stuff. I'm like, that's recycling, that's trash, that's this, that's that. I mean, I've, he has every library card he has ever owned. <laughs> From the 70s and the 60s and the 50s. From MoDoc, one from Mo it was, or no, sorry, that was his high school. I think it's his high school library mm. card. It's, it, that's all it is. He had his junior high ID card. <laughs> yeah, somewhere. and apparently, MoDoc, what did I tell you? He, he, got, he failed a course um, in chemistry or something yeah. in high school or college, and I found the report card with an F. It's too bad we have Or he got a D in it, and I, I was like. There's no, there's no written record of, um, he got thrown in jail. So it's got to be on the internet somewhere. No, I don't think so. So this, he, he and some other kids they they got into a like an auto repair shop and got a bunch of tires and, st and stacked stacked them out on the road. So then someone would come in and hit the, hit the tires and, and Grandpa left them overnight. He's like, well, you can learn how dumb that was, kind of thing. And so he he spent a night in jail. But that was back in the day when you could do that and it wouldn't be on your permanent record, right. or, you know, kind of thing. And, and I'm sure the sheriff and Grandpa were like. <laughs> teach this kid a lesson kind of thing so um so but i didn't yeah ron laughed that. a lot he used to he used to really laugh and he would we'd share celebrations he'd be like oh that's great that's excellent yep. and then he'd move on to the next thing but it was <laughs> i really missed that um yeah. he was a very he was a good man mm -hmm. yep. maybe not this. whatever beth but that yeah, was a bit rough was, uh, None of, us Rest, go, uh, none of us generally go gracefully. Either. No, there's no going gentle and back good night. Yeah, so, so hopefully. Right. Yeah. So uh, we're going to broaden out a little bit, talk about the kind of the industry in general. Obviously, sure. you've been around it a long time. Yes. Uh, in addition to just pure size, obviously, yep. has changed. What else has changed in Oregon wine? What are the biggest differences you've seen? We don't use plastic cups anymore. <laughs> you maybe heard that one. Uh, money. And the money. Well, uh, even that, though. So, I mean, Besides the fact that I think I was uh, ready to uh, rebel and be on my own and go off and be in the Navy, I didn't really contemplate like the wine business as a, as a career. Mm -hmm. uh, immediately at the time there was, you know, like, uh, Davis was uh, obviously available, but I don't think I even, that wasn't even on my radar of like as a possible thing. 
And I think even like if, I remember Lucy Ponzi went off to go be pre-med or something and then decided to change her mind. And they were way more on the wine side. So, um, and so I remember, I uh, must have been home, I was home on leave and my dad took, I don't know if Laura was, my sister was there, but we went down wine taste and went to Beaufort. And I think they were pouring the 93 or the 94. And it, we walk in and there's, you know, it might have been a hand drawn sign, big sign about, you know, this wine and it got, you know, 95 points in Wine Spectator. I'm like, what the hell is Wine Spectator? <laughs> um, and, and I think they were selling it for something like 35 bucks. And I'm like, 35 bucks? Are you fucking shitting me? Somebody's paying this much for the for wine? You can edit that part out. Well, no, you can leave that part out. <laughs> and and I, you know, it was great wine, and I'm like, huh, all right, well, this is different, right? And, and there really was, a, there, the, the back in the 70s and 80s, I mean, you know, yes, Irie and Iraq and people were, were, were taking it seriously, but there was still a lot of, yes, plastic cups on barrels, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And so, I think in the 90s you definitely saw a big like jump up in I'm sure most people wouldn't like price for nothing else per bottle obviously and not seriousness isn't the right word because people did I mean they were like you know, the Volsex and the Ponzi's were making a living and doing it they were taking it seriously but one of the things we noticed in France is that winemaking is a very legitimate right. career it and was it was not something legitimate when we you know growing up like it wasn't a thing like that. Yeah. It just wasn't a thing. It was a side business, and you know, for every Ponzi oh, you had follow your passion more and, doing it, you know, and side it's side starting side. to gain some legitimacy as a yeah, this is a real career. Right. I mean, I, I remember when I first career. quit Intel and and I was sitting on a plane and people said somebody the, my seatmate said oh what do you do and I was like oh well I just quit my job at Intel instead of saying I'm a winemaker because right. I was embarrassed yeah. and it's like now I'm like no I make wine. Mm -hmm. so, That's what I do, which is basically, at some point I had to get new business cards and I was like, well, I need a better title than, you know, sales and marketing because I do so much more than that. So I was like, all right. I'm going to be the VP of logistics because that's what I do. I run the taste. HR needs to be done. Payroll needs to be run. The barrels need topped and we need to move stuff around and we need to clean stuff. It's all logistics. So I'm the vice president of logistics. Yeah. Um, obviously, the number of wineries has increased a lot. The number of labels. Um, I think. That makes a challenge for people. There's, There's no doubt. We just, when people say, oh, I want to make wine, I'm like, why? We don't need another label in Oregon. Right. We I mean, don't. It's an ego, it's I, an ego I know, thing. I know it's a dream, and I, I get it, because we love doing it, too. We, we get that, and so, I, I, not like I would ever be like, okay, that's it. OLCC, no more, no more licenses, please. Could you hold on? Okay. Would help us out. But um, <laughs> they're too busy doing marijuana. Right yeah, now. they are. Anyway, so... Um, but there have definitely been, you know, a, a proliferation of, of labels, and it certainly makes it a challenge that's different than even uh, 15 years ago, for sure, maybe even 10. Um, you know, I remember talking to, just Memorial Day weekend, um, you know, 2,000 time frame, wineries would put out huge spreads, all of them would put out, and get huge crowds. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, that happens a little bit still. I mean, more of their weekend still a big weekend, 
still a lot of people come out, but it feels like it's sort of been diffused, diluted out. Diluted. Yeah, I, I think we need probably need a better. Uh, it'd be nice to get Portland to stop drinking Italian wine and drink local more. Seriously, um, you go to California, and good luck finding a restaurant that doesn't have that has a wine that's not California on right. the label, on the menu. You go to France; they have local wines everywhere. You go to Portland, and you've got two, maybe three Oregon wines on that list, and then a bunch of Italian, a bunch of Cabernet. I get it. People it's, like it, I guess. But for a town that says, you know, eat local and support your local farmer, they don't support their local wineries. They really don't, and it's it's sad. Well, not as much as we wish. But so I'm a bear on the wine business a little bit because I think we've hit peak wine. I think there's too many vineyards. We're starting to see it in grape sales. Um, the prices are going down. That's that's true. <laughs> but grapes, are, there's too many vineyards planted. There is too much, and there's too many wines made. Um, and I think uh, David Adelsheim said uh, the the 27% of Oregon Pinot Noir grapes are leaving the state. Uh, that's yeah. that's a pretty high percentage. Um, I don't know what it is in California. It's that would be an interesting t- statistic. But we have. We have more, and you look at the Southern Oregon winery uh, vineyards in the Willamette Valley, and that it's a—it's not really a fight, but it's interesting. And they have more grapes than they have wineries to make them, so they have to go. Those grapes have to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Willamette Valley probably has more grapes than they can sell to wineries too. Oh. And I've—I've I've met more people who are like, oh, you know, um, it's my retirement dream. I'm going to plant a vineyard, and it's like. Because you don't want to retire, you know it's work, right? It's yeah. farming. You have to work at it all the time, unless you really are a multimillionaire. And I don't want us to turn into Napa. And and you know we have friends who ended up buying a vineyard property in Lodi because they they priced out. His dream was to have a vineyard, and he priced it out in Napa and Sonoma. And you cannot make money. If you buy a vineyard at current prices, even at you know eight thousand dollars a ton and hanging six tons to the acre, they cannot make money. Whatever it is, they cannot make money buying a vineyard in Napa anymore. And God forbid the Willamette Valley turns into that. I also see the trends are very interesting, um, and nobody will say this, but uh, Gen X are our bread and butter. Mm-hmm. We know that. We are Gen X. We get it. <laughs> And we are the forgotten generation, right? Because it's millennials, it's boomers. Da, 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 da. What, the people who are buying wine and drinking wine are Gen X, and they're and millennials are smoking pot and drinking White Claw. Unfortunately, that we have some very lovely millennials in our wine club who are like, I am not your typical millennial. <laughs> And I'm like, I know, and that's why I like you. Um, but they, uh, you know, the the demographic is changing, um, and the American demographic is changing. Baby boomers were heavily, predominantly white, upper middle class people. They had lifetime employment. Nobody has that anymore. And uh, the the makeup is more diverse, uh, just of people in the U.S. and the the younger generations are more diverse and they come from uh, societies that don't necessarily value wine drinking. Right, and we haven't necessarily... Asia does not have a big wine drinking population. China China does, but... In Japan, but it's a sort prestige of, thing. It's yeah. not an everyday thing. So and uh, necessarily, as an industry, done a great job of middle and central America, South and Central America, don't have a wine drinking. 
whereas Europeans do. Yeah. And so the, gen the, the dynamics are really changing, and I don't know that we can sell everything we're making. Mm -hmm anymore. So the, it's got to change. And then the other problem is, you know, that we've seen a slew of breweries closing lately in Portland, mm -hmm. uh, in Oregon and nationwide even. And um, wine has a longer timeline. So even if you close your winery, you've got three years of inventory to sell. So you don't see that it doesn't make as much, and you've got all this capital tied up in it. It doesn't make sense to close it like it does a brewery where you make it, you sell it, you make more, you sell it more, and da 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 da. It's, it's fast. And so I don't know what kind of a bump we're in for, but I see it coming. Um, I might be wrong. I, well, so if you look at the organ wine industry in 10 years, what do you see? Corporatization. Yeah. Um, seriously, uh, no, it's happening. It was just the double side. Yeah, sorry. no, it's. Um, I mean, it's, I, I mean, not to let's let's maybe not be all doom and gloom. I think first of all, I, I do think I'm that, all doom, doom and gloom. Yes, I, I mean, I except think, that this is delicious. Uh, <laughs> I do think that the organ wine business is maybe a little better position than other states um, mm. in that we do set up a high-end uh, premium thing. We're not necessarily aimed at a, a broader market where uh, changing demographic tastes are going to hit first and harder. So so I think that, that helps us some. Obviously, the lower price point you go down and the more higher volume are, the closer you get into those kind of concerns. Um, I think I think you will see, uh, I think you'll see, you're going to start thinking of wineries or wine labels a lot more restaurants. They come and go. Because right now there's sort of this wine labels sort of last forever. We know that's not true. We know there are defunct wine labels from the beginning that have, have gone away. But for the most part, you've got a lot of founding wine labels that are still around, um, and even a lot of still a lot of founders that are still around. Um, that will change, um, obviously. But I think, uh, unfortunately, um, but I think wine labels will be a little bit more like restaurants. You know, you'll have your favorite restaurant. I'm like that's great, and then one day they'll announce we're closing up because they'll just come and go. Now the vineyards is another story because they tend to be a bit more permanent, um, and so hopefully I think the vineyards will kind of continue along, and and maybe we'll all. I mean, one thing I think that that's changed is I think everybody's getting better at understanding the vineyards and understanding what they can do and what they don't. Uh, I think we've gotten smarter on what we plant. Uh, and how we do vineyard cultivation. Um, so I think in terms of the quality of grapes, I think are probably better than they've ever been. Um, and I think that for at least anybody who's, uh, the vineyard side of it has become more professional. There's still plenty of vineyards out there that are, that are small and that are new and they probably got very surprised by this, this vintage. Uh, like I said, welcome to Oregon. Um, and so, but I think the professionalism has just really grown on the on the vineyard side. We talked a bit about like the supplier side is is broadening and, and getting bigger. If we want to keep selling all these grapes and keep wineries in business, we're gonna need to do a better job of getting those restaurants and and local customers to drink more local wine. Um, we don't. We're not Napa. We don't sit next to the biggest pile of money ever created by man so we've got limits on that and then we're also you know we're trying to get more people to come visit the state and then leave right because we're Oregon <laughs> um, but 
drink some wine here and take it with them, and then order some more, and then we'll sit, we'll ship it to you. Um, so we're, you know, I think all the industry knows we need to work on that some. And yes, what's not Napa is lovely, you know. We'd all love to sell everybody a hundred dollar bottle of wine, and we'd be excited because it's hundred dollars, and the customer would be excited because it's only a hundred dollars. And it'd be great if we did that all the time, but you know, it's not going to happen, and it probably shouldn't because we'd like to have people be able to drink our wine every day, and we work hard on that. So, so I think you're just going to see that. I think that's right, though. We all have to be aware of how the market the customer base is changing. It's not just baby boomers spending forever uh, kind of thing, and and so we need to be smarter about it. But maybe it will mean that. Uh, there is more wine aimed at everyday consumption, and that'd be good because you know you go to what we're talking about. You go to France, you get that seven euro bottle of wine, and it's good. Or you know everybody's got the story of going to Italy and filling up the jug of wine at the you know local place, and it was amazing. Or the restaurant had their own wine, and so maybe we'll see more of that. Um, it'll be smaller margins. Um, that'll be interesting. Everybody will have to figure out how to do that a little bit. Things I would so, like to see. Somebody is getting jealous of not being any attention over here. Um, so uh, we'll have to figure that out, sort of the, the financial side of how does that work. Um, you know, a lot of, I think, push on Chardonnay is everybody's got visions of $35 bottles of white wine and they're dancing around their heads to match their Pinot, as opposed to, you know, $20 bottles of Pinot Gris, which are a lot harder to, you know, make a big bit of money on. but. People can open that twenty dollar bottle a lot easier. So we'll probably have to figure out how to do that. So hopefully we do. I'd like to see a lot more so wine is marketing. It's it's mostly marketing. It's how it makes people feel. And it's it, it's interesting because our wine club is very much people who recognize what they're tasting. And the people who just go there and feel fancy and taste the wine are like, oh, it made me feel really good. And those people go home with that bottle and it makes them relive that beautiful, fancy experience and they feel great. Good. That's not our business model because we we really do focus on putting a quality product into the bottle. But there's a lot of stuff with um, sustainability and good farming practices that is very interesting to me. Um, we're live certified and we have been for, I think, 12 years. Maybe 13. Anyway, a while. And uh, yes. <laughs> the vineyard's well. older than live was. So, um, but live is a really good standard. It's actually better to me, and I get this somewhat from Kevin, that you know, organic is the same thing for carrots and apples and lettuce and, and cows and chickens. And so it doesn't necessarily apply to wine grapes, whereas live is very focused on viticulture and what are the best practices for a viticulture practice. And that, is, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I like this organization a lot. I think they don't, again, they're about as good at marketing as I am. So they don't toot their own horn enough. And you look at some of the certifiable standards in California, and they're actually crap. They allow a lot of chemicals, and they allow a lot of stuff. And you know, organic allows copper to be sprayed in the vineyard. So that's, do you want to drink that? No, live doesn't allow that. Live is very viticultural certified. Yeah, some organic guys are going to come. I know, the they're going to, I'm going to get yelled at. 
but yeah. it's the end of the video, so they won't watch it all the way to the end. Yeah. Yeah. So it should be fine. Um, but I, I like, I think live, it'd be really nice if live expanded better and did better marketing on what we really are because it really, we think it's the best way to grow grapes. And it's really good for vineyard health. We've seen it over 12 years. I mean, how many 12 year old vineyards are there? Not actually that many, surprising. But we're 40 years old and we saw a difference. And we, it, Ron did farm organically for certain customers right. here and there. It didn't always go so well. The old vineyard is a really good example too that didn't go so well. Yeah. Um, organic's not the, a one size fits all solution. Live is a vineyard solution and I think it's really important to make sure that you're not running off chemicals into, into the wastewater system and, and looking at your water usage. And now we're on a well system and we're, and actually the big thing for me is we're dry farmed. We don't irrigate. That's huge in wine. Eastern Washington is completely irrigated. Mm -hmm. California is almost completely irrigated. Dry farming is a good thing for the environment and we think it's good for the vines. What state did you grow up in? New Mexico, which irrigates the hell out of everything. So I, there is no Rio Grande now? because it has, it's just a trickle because of irrigation. So I actually understand water issues pretty well, actually. You get a little lazy about that here in the Wyoming Valley. Yeah. You're like, oh, it's just water everywhere, right? There is water everywhere. And it's good to be dry farmed. And it, it lets you be a farmer more than controlling the environment. Mm -hmm. And controlling the environment is not working so well for everywhere. And uh, I, so I, I like the fact that we're dry farmed. I like the fact that we're live. I like, think that should be raising to people's consciousness more than just what's in your glass. But again, it has to be a good quality product in the glass. Mm -hmm. yeah. End of rant. So, so what, do that you one. See, what do you see as you look ahead for yourselves here at Dion? What do you hope for in the next, say, decade here? Did you buy those water tins? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I haven't checked them yet. I'm hoping that we can make a $100 bottle of wine that you can open and be like, damn, this is a great $100 bottle of wine. That's what we would like to be. Make about 25 cases of it, because the rest of it's going to have to move at a different price point. <laughs> um, no, we, I, it's hard to be small. Uh, vineyard size, we're, we're medium for Oregon and tiny for everywhere else. but. Um, but on the winery side, we're small, and so, and that's tough. Um, we'd like to keep doing it. The, the economics of small business is not any for any, easy for any small business, and it's not necessarily easy at all for the wine business. Hi. You're going to be famous as the butthead dog. Yeah. Um, you want to come up here? Hup. No, he needs to go outside. I know. Soon. And he wants supper. Oh, yes, that too. Um, and so, I think we no. We want to keep doing it. We would like to work a little less hard. Yeah. Um, Getting a forklift was like, hey, was oh my stuff. god, we got a you bin know. dumper this year, and we, we used to shovel the grapes out of the picking bins. And we, I, people who have helped us during harvest, I, I showed them pictures. I'm like, that's a bin dumper. We just rake them onto the sorting table. I'm like, oh my god, that's amazing. I want to come help you again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, like, I know, it's... Oh it's I'm never coming back. Oh, I'll come back now. Try uh, shoveling seven bins yeah. of grapes onto a sorting table. You, there's a reason that Harvest Body exists. And, like, I love Harvest Body. I didn't get Harvest Body this year because we didn't shovel as much. And I was like, hmm, I'm going to have to, like, work out more because I didn't get Harvest Body. Harvest Body is a beautiful thing. But, uh, no, we'd like to. I mean, yeah, it'd be, like, it'd be nice to not have to work so hard and so much. It'd be nice to me. 
We're Willamette Valley, we make real wine. Yeah. That's what um, we want to do. Yeah, no, and, and <laughs> Sorry, sorry for the strip show there. Yeah, there we go. I'm like, they're gonna, they're gonna miss it in. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's really, it's, it is something special to keep this venue going. Um, you know, to be out there, it's, it's, there's something really nice to walk through a venue. It's um, gorgeous. As long as we can, you know, pay the bills. Um, and so, you know, we'd like to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. um, we're not necessarily getting younger, so making it all a little bit easier would be nice. Um, keeping the keeping the tradition going would be fun. Um, maybe not. Maybe not having a day job would be would be. Would be cool. Maybe not working seven I'd days a week. Seven days who, a week. All these winemakers who go surfing or something after <laughs> after harvest, and I'm like, I don't know who those people are. Unicorns. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, we do. So you know, we like to do that. We like to we like to enjoy the wine business um, as much more. We, <laughs> we work too hard. Yeah, and I think a lot. Of, I think a lot of small. I'm sure big wineries too, but a lot of small wineries work really hard. Um, and just like all small businesses with an added benefit of manufacturing and farming and high capital costs. Um, so, um, but, uh, so yeah, I think if we can, we'd like to do that. We'd like to maybe make it a little easier, um, make some really good wine, keep the dog entertained, <laughs> yes. Hey, I just got one more, one more question for yeah, you. Yeah, sure. Our, our most important question of all. Uh -oh. So, what's the secret to a successful marriage in the wine industry? You both like wine. Gin? Uh, gin. Gin's a good good help. Yep. Gin gin works well. Um, uh, the ability to yell at each other and let it roll off your back the next day. I've been a list. <laughs> um, you yell at me sometimes. What? Mostly I yell. Solo caution. Um, I think we I actually find Yes, you're gonna say something that no, stop. <laughs> no, I mean working harvest together. If you can work 14-hour physical labor days to exhaust the point of exhaustion for a month together, and still like reach over and be like, "Good night, love you." You've about, got a good marriage. Which is about as exciting as it gets. Right That's now. called sex during um, harvest. Yes. Was it good for you, honey? Yeah, okay, good. Um, <laughs> No, I, seriously. Um, there is something. I'm not. I. I, I think that it's weird maybe for me. No, no, in. it's weird for me. Yeah, maybe, maybe that one gets cut out. Um, most people don't. Most married people don't work together. Yeah. I find that weird. Like, part of us being married is the fact that we work together. It. It actually maybe keeps us working. The divorce would take so much time. <laughs> oh, all right, fine. Let's you have to like finance yeah. all this problem. Um, Who's going to take the wine? wine yeah. <laughs> right. Like I mean, it's just you. Know, I got to get a winemaker. Did you have to divorce her? <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, um, but it does kind of. It's it's almost more traditional way of being married. Oddly enough. Um, yeah. And so, I think it actually being married. This is kind of the reverse of the question. I know the answer. answer. You know the answer. I yeah. would say it helps being. No. Together helps me. The answer is you make me laugh, and you still make me laugh, and that's the only reason you get away with all this stuff. As long stuff as we don't talk, it's because you make me laugh. Yeah. Chuckle. Yeah. So, and we have a dog. Well, having a dog helps. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
No, I think it, I think it, I think you work together. You, you, I think we do maybe sort of like okay, you're dealing like since I was in the Navy, maybe this helps in that it's like okay, she is in charge of this thing, and I, I'm going to respect that she's in charge of that thing, and then I'm going to be in charge of this thing, and and hopefully you know I just you know. I will get to make the decisions over here. QuickBooks. So, He's in charge of QuickBooks. Yeah, I'm, in charge of QuickBooks. I'm in charge of everything else. You're not in charge of any of that. But, <laughs> no, 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 how much? Anyway, uh, see, this is the fun part, right? Um, so, but uh, it, it's, we have to work. We've, I, it, it would be weird to be married and not be working together. Yeah. I actually don't know what people who are married and don't work together, I don't know what they do. I don't know what they talk about. Like soccer? Soccer? I don't know. They go to movies, I guess. I, I don't know. Like, you know, who's cooking tonight? That's uh, takeout. Um, you know, kind of thing. So I I think it's kind of the backwards answer of the question, I guess. But, you know, for us, being married makes wine work. Mm -hmm. And for us, drinking a lot of wine makes married work. <laughs> <laughs> Bubbles, particularly. Bubbles, pretty well. When, so. I mean, when you open a bottle of wine that you have created Maybe together together and you drink it and you're like damn this is good look what we did, look what we did. that's an awesome feeling yeah. and I, yeah, I, it's the art of creation right yeah. i mean there's a lot of art in winemaking there's a lot of science and it's right brain and left brain and you have to use all of it mm -hmm. and it helps when you have two brains or <laughs> two, two times one third of the, anyway Extra brains. Another harvest T-shirt there. Well, yeah. oh, we have so many. Ideas. One of the uh, one of the there's a whole list. There's a list. Some of them will never be printed. Um, there's uh, when we're wine tasting, when we barrel taste, it's very interesting because he comes at it from a vineyard perspective, and I come at it from the wine perspective because of my training and his train is life training, and um, so he's like, oh, this is you know overripe or this is you know it tastes like the grass wasn't mowed enough under the vineyard and I'm like well this tastes like cherries and pomegranates and, and <laughs> so it, it, it's actually very complimentary because we usually when we barrel taste we do give them an ABC rating we haven't had very many C barrels for several multiple years which is great because we keep getting better at this and um, and but we'll be like I'm like a minus he's like B plus I'm like <laughs> Oh, let's see if I can convince you into yeah. it, and we talk each other into it, and then right. we end up going A minus slash B plus. Right. <laughs> and that's a rating. That's actually a rating. But we taste barrels over three different sessions and and see what they did almost, over you know, time. We almost always agree. Well, or or we're pretty close. We kind of. I don't think anybody's like absolutely not. That barrel doesn't get in. That, that yeah. happens. No. I think we're usually like, oh yeah, that barrel's that's not ready for prime time. We both agree, agree on that and. And we usually agree on the good ones, and we, you know, so, but by, by working through it, one, I think we make better wine uh, than we would individually. Um, yeah. And, uh, like I said, I don't like, what do people talk about if uh, don't work together? Yeah. I really don't marry people. I think not yeah. <laughs> Hi, honey. What did Trump do today? Oh, you know, kind of thing. Um, here, have some gin. I, you know, I, so I, I think it helps. Uh, and uh, so work together. Yeah. Don't get too angry. Throw, and if you do have good makeup. Throw the pieces of the press into the vineyard uh, away from the spouse. You know. <laughs> um, those kind of things. Yeah. 
Excellent. We had some pretty good answers to that question. That one's right up there at the top, though. So yeah. thank you for that. No problem. So that's all the questions question. that yeah. I have no for you. Is there anything <laughs> we didn't cover that we should have covered? Anything? I'm almost afraid to ask. Anything uh, I should have asked that I didn't? Deaf, dog, deaf retrievers will bring dead skunks back to you um, and not stop unless you use dirt clods. My mom could tell you the story. She has the story of throwing the dirt clods at the deaf golden retriever. And he's right. like, look what I brought for you. Yeah. The dead skunk. The face on, like, Why don't you love me? Man? And then she put him in Ron's car, right. which was at the old vineyard. Right. And said, your dog is in your car and left and, for and home with the kids. Took us to the kids home and dad had to drive the skunk dog back. <laughs> it was a VW rap or bug too. Oh, oh. Yeah. there's some good stories. Yeah, it's dogs too bad Joanne yeah, won't talk to you. Dogs get in a, into amazing adventures in vineyards. So yeah, Chaco. Well, I had somebody at the vineyard. I may have had like a high dollar customer, private tasting kind of thing. And Chaco comes running down from the vineyard, and I reach down to pet him, and I can smell him, and he just has this brown streak on him, and he's been rolling in some sort of shit, and I'm like. Oh my god, and I turned the hose on him, which really pisses him off. But I'm just like, I'm so sorry you had yep. to see this and so, smell this. And then I'm like, authentic. Uh, it's very authentic. Yeah. yeah. But dogs, dogs love vineyards, and they have great adventures. Sometimes those adventures smell. Often. Often. There you go. One more important thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both thank you. so much. This has been wonderful, yeah. and we've laughed a lot, obviously. So yeah. appreciate your time and no your and your candor today. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.